When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to Basketball Conference, the ACC football podcast. Yes, it is me, Joey Weaver, the dad again. I am back. Uh, that guy is Mike McDaniel. And Mike, we are not alone. We are not. We're not joined Cameron. by our kids in this case. Cameron. We are joined Hello. by one of our favorite, very favorite guests on this podcast, Cameron Underwood. Welcome back. How are you, sir? Good, good, man. Uh, oh. <clears throat> Sorry, I got that frog in my throat again, but no. Uh, good, man. Great to be back. You know, miss you guys. You know, uh, we're talking for a minute. So I know you guys are busy with the multiple progeny that you have, but, uh, you know, always good to be here and everything to talk some ACC football. I, I'm going to be honest. I don't know what that word means, but I'm going to use context clues, and I think I figured it out. But, um, anyways, Cam, it is a. <laughs> Cam, it's a pleasure having you on, as always, and, and we're, it's Hot so start. good to hear from you. Um, yes, sir. We, as as the people that are keeping score at home might have recognized, uh, we have not yet put out a proper Miami preview for the season. So as we go through and recap week one, uh, we will do that, and then on the tail end of this, there will be a Miami preview to talk about the season up ahead. Thankfully, Miami's only played one game so far, and uh, it was you know the uh, the butt kicking that we kind of all expected it to be. So, Bethune Cookman. <laughs> well, done. look, and we didn't even get to experience their band because there was a battle of the bands on campus in Coral Gables because Jackson State and FAMU were down for the Orange Blossom or whatever classic played on Sunday at Hard Rock Stadium. So all of those college bands and a bunch of high school bands were already on campus at the Wasco Center. So like they came, they played halftime and then like, cool, see ya. And I'm like, they didn't even queue up anything in the stands. Like we, I mean, like that was, I mean, if you like, if you play HBCU, you don't care about the football. You're yeah. here for halftime. You want to see the band, you know, marching eight to five, high step and hear them cue up all the good favorites, SOS, neck, vice versa, all that stuff. You know, you're rocking, you know, everything. But it didn't get any of that experience. So I'm like, I mean, so yeah, it was fine. I'm specifically there for the low brass. If you know, you know. Um, I mean, come on now. They came in with, I mean, I didn't even get to count the tubas this year. But yeah, you know, all of that and, and everything and didn't even really get, you know, that kind of experience. So it wasn't uh wasn't my favorite HBCU game ever, but you know we 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 handle business, so it's fine. That is disappointing. That's that, that that's one of those things. Like you said, like if you show up to an HBCU game, that's that's the one thing you really expect and are and are looking forward to and excited for. And uh, yeah, it sucks to be robbed of that. Yeah, Mike, we got Week One games to recap. Cam, I think you wanted to help us recap these games. You have thoughts. I assume you watched pretty much all of these games. Um, yeah. Let's jump in. So, as everyone kind of knows, this was a uh, tumultuous first weekend for the ACC. Mm, Again, yep. I, I'm not entirely sure what that word means, but I think I used it right. <laughs> uh, we're going to divide this up in, into kind of three segments here. Um, let's let's do this from a the standpoint of like, what does this mean for the conference? Let's go with the good, the fine, and the ugly. 
Um, there were a few games that were particularly good for the conference, a couple that were fine, and several that were decidedly not good. Uh, they were I'm ugly. familiar. Yeah, I'm familiar. Yeah, you know what we're talking about, Mike. Uh, oh, yeah. Let's start with the good. The good news. And uh, one of the most fun games of the weekend, the thing that we were all looking forward to, it paid off in a big way. Pittsburgh 38, West Virginia 31 on Thursday night. The backyard brawl came back. It was everything we were looking for. Uh, Pittsburgh pulls off the win. They, they scored the final 10 points of the game and, uh, and, and, and pull off the win. And that was a good thing for the conference. It was a good tone setter there. Um, I Honestly, this in a lot of ways kind of played out like I thought it would for a while, and then it got really sideways in the second half. I was really underwhelmed with Pittsburgh's offense for a lot of this game. It very much felt like this was Pat Narduzzi going back to what Pat Narduzzi wants to run on offense instead of the thing that worked really well last year, which, sure, man, whatever, like you do you. Eventually, it got him the win. Um, really good win for Pittsburgh. I have questions about how sustainable it is for the balance of the season within the ACC. We'll see. I really like the way Pittsburgh looked in the second half. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about Pittsburgh moving forward. I said before the year, I thought Pittsburgh, because of what they had returning specifically on defense and the pieces they still had returning on offense, despite losing Jordan Addison, despite losing Kenny Pickett, I thought that they could win the Coastal because I think Miami is a year away. I would like to announce on this here podcast, a week one recap, I have changed my mind. Miami is no um, longer a year away. My, Miami is no longer a year away, and Pittsburgh might be several years away. <laughs> I don't know what the hell they're thinking on offense, guys. Like, I don't know the, the decision that Pat Narduzzi made to just decide that he wants to just run the football now. We're done throwing it. We're, we're good, and we're just going to bring in Frank Signetti as our offensive coordinator to set the offense back 200 years is a really, really bold decision. Now, I will say Pittsburgh's got a good stable of running backs. The issue is that I'm not sure how sustainable it is for them to run the football like well over the course of an entire season because I'm not entirely sure that Pittsburgh's offensive line is as good as I thought they would be. So this is going to be a interesting thing to monitor, specifically this weekend against Tennessee, because I'm not sure if Pittsburgh, <laughs> first of all, if this is a track meet, which is the way Josh Heupel likes to have his team play football, if this turns into a track meet, Pitt is screwed. Mm -hmm. If if Pittsburgh drags Tennessee down, then I think that game gets a little bit more interesting because I do like Pittsburgh's front seven a lot. But man, if this gets into the game that Tennessee wants to play, this could get ugly for Pittsburgh in a hurry in week two. So that's kind of like my high level takeaway. This game got weird. MJ Devonshire made a game change in play on a on a pass at Ford Wheaton should have caught and only hit him like right in the face mask. Um, Devonshire makes a game-changing play. Pittsburgh wins the game. They escape. But, man, it was looking bad for Pitt for a while against a West Virginia team with Neil Brown that I'm not sure how long Neil Brown is for that job. Like, I think he might be in some trouble there. And Pitt really struggled there for the better part of, like, two and a half quarters. And then it still really kind of was in doubt until the final, like, three or four minutes. So, Man, I don't know how to feel about Pittsburgh after this one, but I do not think they're winning the Coastal. So I'd like to change my mind on that on this podcast. I mean, that's a thing that you can do. I just, uh, you know. <laughs> Thank you. I I just push back on, in, in general, like, yeah, Miami's a year away. Miami's a year away from what? You know what I mean? Like, are they 
winning the conference and everything. Like, but I mean, again, for the umpteenth year in a row, Miami has more talent than everybody in this division, everybody in the conference except yep. for who? Clemson. So, I mean, we just had to put it together in our terms. But I think the thing that saved Pittsburgh and their intentional return to 1993 from an offensive standpoint for God, man. no good reason based upon what was there. Well, I, the only good reason would be to dial it back somewhat because you don't have a 17th year senior quarterback there again uh, in Kenny Pickett. Um, but in, then, you know, Keaton Slovis is it, sorry, Keaton Slovis instead. But the thing I think that really saved them wasn't even the pick six. It was the fact that they, and they being West Virginia, went away from what was working. Mm-hmm. So I know yep. that Tony Mathis yep. is their number one running back, number 24, 16 carries for 71 yards, 4.4 per carry. Fine. CJ Donaldson is a yeah, true man. freshman from Miami Gulliver Prep. Yes, he was recruited as an athlete slash tight end. Yes, he's 6'3, 235. That man averaged, and I'm looking at it right now on a website. I'm not going to say the name because not sponsored, but <laughs> 17.86 yards a carry for, a, I mean, 125 on seven carries and a touchdown. When Big 12 got in that game, I mean, slicing and dicing like something off of an infomercial. Yeah. And they <laughs> giving the ball back to 24. Yeah. Right? And look. 24 is the Underwood family number. Every single member of my family, male and female, and whatever sport we played, we wore number 24. So I love seeing somebody with the number 24 on the field cooking. I want to see you at a running back as a, a you know defensive back, all the great cornerbacks in the NFL. I'm like, hey, they're wearing the Underwood family number. Cool, 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 cool. 12, though, for West Virginia? Get like, that guy the ball. Well, how are you not? And then they went away from it, and then you're behind the sticks. Right, and then you have that throw that hit the wide receiver who had an incredible game, and that's such a yeah. Ford Wien's a stud, bro. He's a stud, he's a stud. and he was playing in a studly way, and he made a terrible yeah. mistake by not catching that one. It's a Sunday hop off of his helmet into the hands of the defensive back, and he takes it back. But I mean, I think honestly, that is what saved Pittsburgh because West Virginia could have and should have held the ball for more time and went down and scored by running the ball maybe a couple more times. Well, so they don't have the football Pittsburgh to win that game. How and about think- the decision? I was going to say, how about the decision for West Virginia not to go for it on like fourth and a foot with six minutes left when oh. Donaldson was running the way that he was? Cause I mean, we could talk about it Come and I've on. been beating, I've been beating the drum all summer about Pittsburgh's front seven, but man, they were getting bullied by Donaldson to your point cam. And like, they decide not to go for it on fourth and a foot. They take a delay a game. They punt away. Pitt goes right up the field, scores. Then West Virginia in a tie game through that pick six. Game's over. Scared money don't make none, and they were scared as hell. I will say, people keep treating that like that was like, oh, like they would have iced the game right there. But like you said, I mean, there's like six and a half minutes left in the game. Like, but what? But they're up. They're up seven. Mm-hmm. They're running the ball real. They're running the ball really well. Yeah, and, and, and also they, look, man, you see these major league baseball teams in a high leverage situation. I'm bringing the closer in bottom seven, bases loaded, right. you know, with one out. Because this is the game. I know I want to save Mariano Rivera or uh, Edwin Rios. I want to save him for the ninth inning. Yeah, yeah. this is the game right here. Right. Like, this is the moment mm-hmm. that is going to really be decisive. And 
we're going to trust our team to accomplish this right now. And then, you know, we're going to have other players maybe shift roles to go down and, and, and win the game or, you know, close the game out towards the end. But yeah, I know that there are six minutes left, but if you're running four minute offense and you go score, you know, now you have two and a half left or something like that. That, yeah, that would, that was a really, really big moment. And he, Neil Brown. Yeah. Just not great. Turtle it was up. a choice. It was a choice. Yeah. And it ended up well for the conference. So yeah, go pit. That's a nice win to their record for when we beat them later. <laughs> <laughs> Pittsburgh does get the win again. First time playing West Virginia since 2011, I believe it was. They they yeah, win for the first. Matt time. Barry, Matt Matt Barry, let us know that man. I mean, he could have said 14 more times. It was the first time they're playing in 12 years. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, I figured as much as yeah. And and we saw the 13 to nine signs and all that stuff. I had a fun time explaining that to my in laws, like et cetera. That was that was a good time. Um, in any like in any case though, really fun football game, really fun like TV show to watch, quote unquote. Yeah. Um, I, and I, and I this is the kind of the thing that I, I brought up afterwards is with all the conference realignment stuff and everything going on, it's like in my mind, college football is better when Pitt plays West Virginia. Like this is the kind of stuff, and it's like this is like an attendance record I think for Pitt football at yep. the yep. venue formerly known as Heinz Field. Like that's not a coincidence. Like no. Now they gotta be playing this game more often. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's silly. I mean, it's one of the consequences of conference realignment. But like school presidents, y'all gotta figure it out, bro. I mean, it's conference realignment, it but it's also like willful ignorance. You know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, they, they could make it happen a hundred percent. But you know, yeah. But I, I think they, yeah, the regionality of college football is special, and you know, having games like this that no, it's not going to determine a national champion. No, like. People in Sioux Falls, South Dakota are not going to care about it, but every single person associated with both either of those institutions and many more of us were dialed in. That was a that was a really, really fun game, and hopefully we get more of those. Yep. Yep. Pitt 38, West Virginia 31. We'll keep moving to Sunday night, Florida State 24. LSU 23 in just uh, this game was wild enough, but the fact that it was on its own by, on Sunday night, kind of getting everyone's attention, really just kind of amped up the, the Twitter activity around it, I think. Um, this game, by the way, I'll start here by saying this, this game has big Notre Dame-Texas vibes. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, both, yeah. Both of these teams might struggle to make a bowl game, but even still, this was like game of the year candidate. Like, this was... It was back and forth. It was fun. Um, Florida State looked good. LSU was kind of messy, but Florida State was in position to take advantage in a lot of cases. The thing that struck me, and I think was really striking a lot of people, Mike, you and I texted about this a little bit. Jordan Travis looked like a different player in, this, in this game than he's, he's a stud now. Like the last couple of years, he's like he's a a guy who runs, who sometimes can throw passes. He stood in the pocket in this game and was chucking it all over the yard I thought he looked great throwing the ball for Florida State versus what I'm used to don't know if it translates moving forward but I thought this was a really good win I was not expecting them to beat LSU in New Orleans but I mean they're they're 2-0 and that's a good start here for year three of Mike Norvell it's a good start I've been trying to tell people to like the whole thing and I hate when this happens where we'll watch a game between you know, it's a helmet game, right? Florida State, LSU, like two historic programs, helmet game. We know kind of where each program is at. Like Brian Kelly's inheriting a mess. Mike Norvell inherited a mess. He's still trying to like dig his way out of it. Everybody's like, oh, Florida State, they're they're back. You know, they're, they're really back. And like, I'm trying to tell people, pump the 
breaks. Like LSU could very well finish last in the SEC West. <laughs> um, Jaden Daniels is the quarterback, and I, I think not because Brian Kelly necessarily wants him to be the quarterback, is because his offensive line's so bad that Jaden Daniels literally has to take the ball and just run for his life. <laughs> and you know he's more capable of doing that than Garrett Nussmeyer. So that's why he's the starting quarterback, in my opinion. Um, the, these are two schools that are in varying degrees of rebuild. And I do like the way Florida State has looked in the first two weeks of the season. Yeah, the first game was against Duquesne, but they handled their business. And then I do like the way that they looked against LSU here on Sunday night. But again, like I think LSU is going to be really, really bad. And Florida State almost blew the game. Like They had the ball at the doorstep. They decide they're going to run toss with Treshawn Ward, and he got butterfingers and fumbles. And and then the defense, Florida State's defense, which had played well all night, then lets Jaden Daniels march right up the field, go 99 yards for a touchdown. And if it weren't for LSU's special team, by the way, look, if you want to see Brian Kelly kill another guy, it might be Brian Polian because the special teams in terms of like LSU and like what they're doing moving forward, like Brian Polian is the only assistant that followed Brian Kelly from Notre Dame to LSU. And he's a special teams coordinator. And the reason why LSU lost this game on Sunday night is because of the special teams. Mm-hmm. Like this was in a total disaster. They had two, they had two kicks blocked. I mean, just a meltdown, a meltdown in, in that two fumble punts. The fumble, the two muff punts. Brian Kelly comes out after a game and he says, yeah, we had the wrong guy returning punts. It's like, well, you guys should probably figure that out, right? Well, and and he said it in the sense not of like the wrong guy went out on the field. It was like we picked the wrong guy based on what we saw in practice, which, dude, that's gross. Are you kidding me? Like, right. that's right. brutal. So now you're yeah, throwing. So now you're real throwing great players coach. Right, exactly. Um, you know. I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know what to make of really either of these teams. I, I like I, I do like Florida State in the direction they're heading, but in terms of like oh Florida State's back is this like national narrative thing. Like let's pump the brakes on that a little bit. Like I think Florida State's gonna be improved this year. I I do think they're gonna make a bowl game. Um the schedule's favorable enough and and they're showing enough competence here through two weeks to make me think that like they'll they'll be good enough to make a bowl game. But this LSU team's gonna be bad. So let's let's relax a little bit on that. Look LSU is not gonna be great. And they lost their best player, Mason Smith, on the first drive, jumping yep. to celebrate a TFL, landed wrong, ACL. snapped his ACL in his left knee. He's done for the year, um, which is, you know, you don't want to see that, you know, hopefully a full recovery for him and he comes back next year and then there's the top five draft pick that he should be. So there's that. Uh, but, yeah, they have a real mess in their systems and everything. You know, like Malik Neighbors is, you know, he's a, he's a good player, but, I mean, Terrible, terrible performance at punt return, and um, I don't know how. I don't know how you put him out there to get another or to to muff another one. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you find somebody else on the roster, or you even if you just put him out there and say, "Well, no, you can't even say just fair catch it because he had Butterfingers fair catching it on you both, know, so, on, on both, both of them. Yeah, it just yeah. went straight down the you know the jersey and everything. So, I mean, yeah, I think that they're going to struggle. Jaden Daniels was terrible all the way so up until bad. That. 99 yard drive basically in like two other throws all day long and a couple of nice runs because he is athletic and he got away from some of the pressure. But in terms of Florida state and, you know, the ACC uh, view, I will say Jared verse. Wow. You know, like they, <laughs> yeah. they got Jeremiah Johnson from Georgia in the transfer portal a couple of years ago. They get Jared verse from Albany uh, this year. And he looks like a capital D dude for one. 
Um, yeah, he's gonna be a you problem. know they do have. I mean, no, yeah, he Major. he's a guy that you need to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're gonna have that kind of be a, a theme about you know defensive ends in the ACC with number five, mm-hmm. uh, you know, yeah. uh, and things like yeah. that. So he's he's a guy. They have more athleticism as a team than they've had in the last couple of years. And short story or long story short, this is a game that Florida State found a way to lose the last four years running. Yep. You know, like come hell or high water, whatever the story is, this is a game that they found a way to lose. And it was the same way that they beat Miami some years ago with the blocked extra point. (laughs) After a touchdown, uh, the touchdown that we scored to Stacey Coley from Brad Kaya was with like 12 seconds left in the fourth quarter. So it wasn't at the very, That's very end. Back, um, Coley. Oh, my God. Yeah, man. It was a nice throwback. little whip route to the left side of the end zone. I was not blogging. I was not in the press box that day. I was with my buddy Roman sitting in the end zone. They literally were coming our way. He turns around because he doesn't watch extra points normally. And we heard that double tap, you know, from when it got blocked. And he just goes down the road. See, you, see, you, see, you. shake everybody's hand and just out of there. <laughs> and so it gave me immediate flashbacks to that unfortunate uh, for Miami event because, like, they found a way to win that game in that same way. But yeah, that is a test of maybe the mental fortitude that had been lacking for Florida State. And yeah, I'm interested to see if that continues. I'm of the mind that, yeah, they'll probably make a bowl game now since they found. Both of those wins, I mean, especially the LSU game, because I was not counting that as a win at all. Um, yeah. But, yeah, the notion that they're back, which their whole entire roster was trying to scream at everybody, we're back, we're back, we're back. That shows the depths to which Florida State has fallen. Because if you beat a bad LSU team yeah. in a neutral side game, and that's back for a team with the record for most consecutive top five finishes in the AP poll for a you know two-time national championship program, Things like that that's had you know Heisman winners and uh, you know Hall of Famers and things like that. Eh, 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 I love it though. See, I mean, look, I love the bravado, but you're not going to see Miami talking about being back for beating a similar kind of a team. No, I was just going to say, I was just going to say, I love the, I love the national media that's like bat. They're they're bashing uh, Brian Kelly and LSU all off season, right? Is this team that's probably just not going to be very good? They're going to be like one of the worst teams in the SEC. And then those same people just turn around after Florida State wins in like thrilling fashion against a really mm-hmm. bad LSU team. Those are the same people who are saying Florida State's back. So you I see can, it. I cannot give them that. You see I it. Not give them that. Yeah. So I mean, just, yeah. that drives me crazy. But I will say again, a step, if not two steps, forward from where Florida State was because yeah, they found a way to lose those games for many years. They won that one. So uh, you know, I don't love it because I don't love Florida State, but I do have to give credit where credit's due. Yeah, Norvell needed it bad. He needed a signature win bad. Oh, he needed he needed that one real bad. Yeah, yeah. he did. I, I I did feel like what I saw with my eyes was an improvement on what I have seen from Florida State in the last couple of years. Like absolutely just like cohesiveness on both sides of the ball. Some of the offensive play calling. I thought Alex Atkins was, had a really good scheme, had some really good play calls going through. Um, I, I, Norvell I think calls got plays. There. Does he? Yeah. Oh, what do I, yeah. What was I thinking? Like, I mean, yeah, they, they named Atkins the OC, but Norvell calls plays. That would make sense. Um, well, I don't know that it would make sense, but I guess he does. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I, I, I just thought what I saw from Florida State was better than in recent years. Um, 
Absolutely. It's trending. It's trending in a better direction for sure. Like I think a lot of people want to say, and I don't know if Norvell will work out long term, but I do feel like they're going to give him a shot. And I think it's heading in a, it's heading in a better direction. I mean, I think if they found a way to lose that game, I think everybody's conversation, including ours on this podcast, would be a lot different. We would be saying, "Are we sure this is ever going to work out with Norvell? It's year three. You got to start showing results at some point. This LSU team is not very good. We all would have said that on this podcast tonight. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I. Norvell needed it. He got the win. And it does seem like Jordan Travis is approved, which, look, the, the story, in my opinion, coming into this game was whether or not Florida State's offensive line could hold up against LSU's front. The story coming out of the game was that LSU's front couldn't hold up against Florida State's defensive line. Mm-hmm. It totally flipped. That was a totally different storyline coming out yeah. of the game and going into it, in my opinion. Yep. Fair. Yep. Florida State 24, LSU 23. Knowles are 2 and 0. They may well be back. And bowl eligible. <laughs> Long season. We'll find out. Last game of the good. Duke 30, Temple nothing. Hmm. I uh, I had I, I watched this game long enough to figure out how I guess I was wrong. I had Temple plus nine teased up by like 13 points, and they still couldn't cover it for me, and I was not that happy about enough. all that. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, Duke... I mean, really good showing for Duke in, in game one under Mike Elko. Um, I, I was not expecting this. It was uh, – they, they were able to generate a lot more offense. Temple might be horrible. That, that oh. is on the table. They were pretty bad last year. They might be worse this year. But I thought Duke was going to be terrible, and a terrible team would not have won this game the way that they did. I'll say that. I like Riley Leonard. Mm-hmm. I, I like him a lot more than what Duke's had a quarterback recently. Yeah, um, I get. And again, like he threw for almost 330 yards. He ran for 64 yards, but it's Temple. Right. So like, I don't want to, I want to just kind of pump the brakes a little bit again, temper expectations, but I do like Riley Leonard. I think Mike Elko has something there. Duke's going to be really, really bad this year, by the way, <laughs> Temple's going to be, Temple's going to be worse. I mean, I, I'm not sure there's, there's not many teams that are going to be worse than Temple. Like Navy's going to be pretty bad. New Mexico State's going to be pretty bad. I, I'd put Temple in that category. Like they're they're at the bottom of the FBS, man. They're they're a lot closer to 130 than like 100. Oh yeah, <laughs> I mean, they're, they're they're awful. And you know, I thought Duke was. Um, I mean, I thought Duke was one of these teams too that was going to be that bad, but. You know, I really like the Elko hire, so I was hoping they would play a little bit better. And hell, they they played a little bit better in the opener. I mean, thirty to nothing. It's it's no joke. A shutout win in your opener is exactly what you want. Look, they did what they needed to do, and this game further supports the resume of one Alfred Golden because he got Temple to be good. And not even just good when he was there. Like, he left and came to Miami, and, like, Temple was still good, bowl eligible, you know, like seven, eight wins for a couple few years after Al Golden left. This Temple team is now back to those Temple teams that you only know from all of the other teams' ACC highlights, all of those Miami returns, all of those, you know, North Carolina games, all of those, whoever, Florida State, you know, even, uh, just beating up on them and them being the other team – in the shot 
um, of, well, I would say those are big East more. So, you know, it'd be your Pittsburgh's and West Virginia's and whatever, but you know, the, the team by which, you know, the other, the Miami's of the world are running, you know, and things like that. This temple team is looking like that. They're pretty, pretty bad. Um, yeah. So I think that that is really just kind of how that played out. Was not expecting that shot out, but, uh, you know, if you're, and I am equating the current temple team to, you know, mid nineties temple, mid nineties temple would have gotten shut out by Duke as well. So I think that, you know, after a, a minor peak of going to, you know, seven, eight wins, they're back where they used to be. They're bad. Did anyone see the two quarterbacks who played for Temple in this game, by the way? I know I know one of them very well. You do know one of them very well. The one that Mike knows is one Quincy Patterson, former mid-grade four-star out of Chicago who went to Virginia Tech for, what, a solid two, three years, something like that? About two and a half before he said, I'm transferring. Yeah. Then he went to North Dakota State, back up there, and now he's the backup at Temple, which, hey, man, the questions <laughs> – Quincy Patterson is a very nice guy. I've talked to him before. Very nice. I don't want to. He's never been able to throw. And <laughs> that was pretty evident. Like he came into the game against North Carolina in six overtimes a few years ago in Blacksburg. It was a 2019 game that went kind of apeshit crazy. And he basically, it, Virginia Tech didn't attempt to pass basically the entire second half because Quincy Patterson had to play. And they just ran the ball um, down North Carolina's throat. That was year one for Mac Brown. Just ran it right down his throat. Um, he then goes to North Dakota State. He doesn't play there. And if you're not if you're not the starter at Temple, with I mean, we just talked about how bad Temple's going to be this year. If you can't start at Temple, uh, look <laughs> like what were the old maybe, NCAA commercials? You're going to go pro in something other than sports? Yeah, <laughs> I was literally just about to use that yeah. phrase. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, like, well, because, you know, you know, or there's always coach. He was backing, he's backing up at Temple, former Georgia quarterback, Dewan Mathis, who started like, he, he, he was the quarterback for like half a game against Arkansas and then got supplanted by some kid oh. named Bennett there mm-hmm. in the 2020 COVID yep. season. And uh, yep. now he's at Temple today, I learned. How about that? Dewan Mathis from Oak Park, Michigan, just outside of Detroit. Shout out to the That's probably Georgia. Because he was a four-star and he was athletic, and uh, they weren't going to play him, uh, or they weren't really recruiting him at Michigan or State. Um, hmm. And he wanted like to go to a big SEC team, so uh, yeah, you know, like a pretty mid-high four-star uh, well, down to Georgia. I will say, I mean, between Dewan Mathis and Quincy Patterson, both combined for three point nine five yards per completion. That's pretty good, right? <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, maybe maybe try for better than that next week, Temple. Jesus Christ. Duke 30, Temple nothing. That concludes the good of the weekend for the ACC. And, of course, the good of the weekend is brought to you by Section103.com. It is the Internet's premier location for buying all sorts of wonderful Georgia Tech apparel. You can go on there and find things that have the official word marks. You can find shirts and hoodies and uh, V-necks, all sorts of things with the official Tech Gold, with the official, again, word marks, the ATL logo, all sorts of great things. They are hard to f- Those things are hard to find in a lot of places for whatever reason. You can find them on section103.com. Use promo code GOACC for 10% off your first order. 
Really appreciate Steven and the gang for their partnership with us this season. Hopefully, as you went to see Georgia Tech take on Clemson at Mercedes-Benz Stadium, as we record this on Tuesday night, that was last night. Hopefully, you were wearing your Section 103 gear to represent them. And if not, you've still got another chance to wear it next weekend as they take on Western Carolina and look to avoid embarrassment. But we will get to that at a later date. Once again, go find all sorts of great Georgia Tech gear at section103.com and use promo code GOACC for 10% off your first order. I love my my gear. I know that you will too. Go check it out. Uh, as mentioned, number four, Clemson 41, Georgia Tech 10 on Monday night in Mercedes-Benz Stadium. I feel like this game was in a lot of ways. It was actually a lot more competitive than the final score would indicate. Um, it, was, it was a fairly close game through the middle, even into the late parts of the third quarter. Um, finally, Clemson just totally runs away with it uh, in the fourth quarter. All sorts of weird game management stuff going on with Georgia Tech. There were a whole bunch of um, procedural, like pre-snap penalties, things that are just very much staples of the Georgia Tech era at this point under Collins. Um, big Cinco for Clemson, just more of the same. Honestly, in a lot of ways, this feels like this is basically the exact same Clemson team as we saw last year until Cade Klubnick came in the game last drive. I know there's some thoughts there. I was really happy with the chip long offense that, that really this, this first game, I thought that the scheme was cohesive. He set up plays, you know, he ran stuff early in the game to set up stuff later. Um, Jeff Sims, I thought looked like a totally different player, much, much better. He, he looked super comfortable, confident, throwing the ball, made some great throws multiple times that I audibly state, like just yelped, Oh, wow, Jeff. Or, you know, oh, that's beautiful, Jeff. You know, stuff like that. So good stuff there. Um, but, again, lots of procedural nonsense. Clemson's still a much better put-together team. I, I don't know. I, I feel a little bit better about Georgia Tech coming out of this game, but there's still a lot of this stuff that's very uh, very typical that maybe the more things change, the more they stay the same. I mean, I have uh... – I have one point I want to make, literally one point, because I placed two bets on this game and they covered by a combined one point. So <laughs> I uh, I had <laughs> I had uh, Clemson. Look, Clemson is a team that, in my opinion, like coming into the year, I thought was properly rated in the top five because I was of the opinion that, you know, DJU went through some stuff last year off the field. Um, and I was thinking, okay, mentally, he's probably got time to get right. Obviously, like the arm talent is there. We knew that. But I thought this was going to be easier to put it together. I watched that game last night, and now I'm sitting here wondering, like, man, I don't know if he's the guy. In fact, I'm pretty convinced he's not because Cade Klubnik comes in, and I don't want to, I don't want to make like, too big of a deal about the Cade Klubnik experience on that final drive, other than, you know, his touchdown made sure that I covered last night, which is really important to me. But the other thing I'll mention is that, like, when Klubnik comes in the game and he's playing against Georgia Tech's backups, like, it's really hard to get a gauge on, like, really how good Clemson's offense actually is with, like, the backups there in the game and stuff like that. But the one thing I took away was the rhythm, right? The rhythm of the offense when Klubnik was in. It was very different from what we saw the entire game from Clemson. I thought DJU played a better second half than a first half. I think Clemson's receivers are going to really be in for a rude awakening later in the year because 
Georgia Tech secondary is fine, but they're not what I would describe as like really good, which is, you know, Clemson's going to be facing some secondaries later this year that are really going to test them. Um, and I just not, I'm not sure that Clemson's got the receivers to separate and they haven't really in a couple of years. That's my big takeaway. And the fact that the offensive line for Clemson, the interior offensive line, I tweeted this, they're playing at an FCS level right now. And some people are like, oh, maybe group of five. Okay, fine, whatever. They're not playing like a Clemson offensive line should as top five team, right? And it's a good time to remind people that Clemson's offensive lines have not necessarily, you know, put a lot of guys in the NFL when you compare them to like the elite teams that they found themselves playing against in the college football playoff and when they've been winning national championships against Bama. The one weakness that we've always talked about or perceived weakness anyway, was Clemson's offensive line. But even those offensive lines were much better than what we, we've seen put out there the last two seasons. Like 2021, they had a bad offensive line. Through one game in 2022, they still have a really bad offensive line. DJU, they're afraid to have him throw down the field. There are a few reasons for that. Number one, I don't think they're too terribly confident in him. Number two, like I don't think they're confident at all in their receiving core to get open. And then number three, the offensive line, I don't think allows DJU to sit back there in the pocket and make throws more than like three or four yards down the field because they are getting massacred, especially on the interior. Like the guard and center play last night was horrible for Clemson. So they are, they got some issues to iron out offensively. I think what we're going to see, and I think you guys are in agreement here. I think we have a Kelly Bryant, Trevor Lawrence situation emerging here in Death Valley. I think we're going to see Cade Klubnik sooner rather than later. I think we're going to see him sprinkled in a bit more than I anticipated coming into the year earlier, right? I think September, like mid to late September, we're going to start seeing more Cade Klubnik, especially when they play a team like, I don't know, Wake Forest that's going to score a billion points or mm. at least try, try to against this defense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but they're going to have a, a offense that if they score 24 points, they can win the game because I'm not sure that Clemson's offense, even against a bad Wake Forest defense, is going to be able to score all that much. I mean, I Which saw that game last year. <sighs> they scored about 50 points on Wake Forest, and Wake could only put up about 28 on that defense. Like, uh, I, that that's not the best example game I could come up with. But anyways. <laughs> Look, I'm going I'm to put it like this. And Mike's tweet was great because he was like, you know, talking about the, the offensive line play, and I saw so many responses that he quote tweeted and people are like well they got four stars and five stars all over that line he said how are they playing how are they playing right and they're not playing to that level and this is what happens when you don't have generational players at pretty much every offensive skill position led by quarterback you know your Taj Boyd into your Deshaun Watson stopgap with Kelly Bryant and then Trevor Lawrence and each one of those Kelly Bryant being the exception, but he was a stopgap, but all three of those quarterbacks were generational and they were better than the one before them. Mm-hmm. Right. That covers a lot. You have all those, you know, skill players, right? Think about your favorite NFL team. One probably plays there. Sammy Watkins was a dude. First team all American Deshaun Hopkins, uh, Mike Williams. You even had, um, Ray Ray McLeod, who was, you know, a high school All-American. You had um, Armani Rogers. You had Hunter Renfro, who uh, we were talking before he came on the mic. Um, and Mike said, hey, he's the number one on this team by far. And that's not a slight to him because he was number two on championship caliber team. Yeah. But 
there are light years between where he is and that's a measure of distance guys light years measure of distance <laughs> miles and miles from where hunter Renfro was to where the best receiver probably bo collins um who's mediocre plus for this year's team and then you have an offensive line that's been consistently not there and is definitely a step back and i say all of that to say to lead up into um DJ Uyunglele, who I call ukulele because I don't want to spell that all the time on Twitter. <laughs> but ukulele, he's not that guy. He is a big dude, but you have to run the Cam Newton quarterback power with him. And he's not as big, fast, or physical as Cam Newton. So, like, you're not really gaining that much there. He has a strong arm, so he can throw it far. But outside of – and I, I kept tweeting it out last night and said, bubble screen – Swing pass, slant. I mean, where is he throwing the ball? I mean, he would throw the flag route, the seven route, and he'd throw that one really, really well. Outside of that, everything was dink and dunk. And that's part because of the offensive line, but part because he can't process mentally what's going on. He has to see people high school open. And by when I say high school open, I mean, if you wear jersey number 88 as a receiver, DJ has to see both eights open in the window before he starts his motion, right? He's not projecting really. And the difference you can see was between that reticence to throw versus Kate Klubnik on that rollout, which was a high-low read with no a low receiver. So he just said, you know what? I'm going to fit that ball in that window. Boom. And that was the first throw sold. Mm-hmm. Then... He threw that seam up the, seam. Le- the left seam when that dude was no parts open because in con- it, it, the windows get smaller the higher up you go. Mm-hmm. Right? So high school, you're going to see the whole man open. College, you might see half of the man or a third of them you know, open. And in you know, the NFL, you might see the tip of a pinky, and that's open. You know what I mean? But Klubnik threw a ball into a tight window in double coverage like it was nothing. And I'm like, yo, those two throws, you can debate all you want and about whoever, but we're going to the club level. Uh, you know, club, okay. Going to the club level. Shout out to the solid verbal. I did steal that from Ty Hill and Brand. I'm so mad that he could, because I've been tweeting about this with people for ever since Clubnik signed. I'm like, oh, yeah. Once he signed, it was a countdown to him starting for me because DJ Ukulele is not that guy. <laughs> the next two weeks, Clemson has Furman and Louisiana Tech. We're going to see plenty of Cade Klubnik. And then the week four at Wake Forest, that is the last game if you play all of them. That's the last game DJ Uyunglele can play and then still redshirt and transfer somebody without losing a year of eligibility. I really, really, I was thinking maybe it would be week six at Boston College, maybe week seven or, uh, you know, at Florida State. He's Kate Clubbing is going to be the starter for Clemson in September. It's coming very soon. And I know they're, you know, Dabo is trying to spin that performance and everything. Well, DJ did DJ. Look, that second block punt kept DJ in the game because they're like, look, we're on the 10, we're on the five. We're gonna let him get this drive and score. And da, da, da. if I really believe at 27-10 with the offense not doing anything. Right. And KJ Henry, that's your other defensive end wearing number five who needs to be blocked by somebody other than a tight end joy. I'm sorry. He just does. 
Um, <sighs> rough, rough. I mean, or anybody on Georgia Tech's offensive line or offensive uh, group one on one, like that was just that was a a losing proposition from start. Mm-hmm. But that left DJ in the game. I fully believe that they would have went to Klubnik there, and it would have been over. I think for DJ. But yeah, you know they're you know in the broadcast they're you know being very vociferous about their praise for DJ and what he did and da da da. And after the game, I tweeted out the uh, CFB stats page from Kelly Bryant's last year at Clemson and the four games. Mm-hmm. Go look up the stats for those four games and then go compare them to what we saw from DJU last night. And you're going to see that they're very, very similar. Yeah. That he is very, very, very short for this job. Cade Klubnik, we're going to the club level in September. It might be a week or two. Oh, well, it won't be this week. They're going to still let DJ start against Furman. He might even get the game against Louisiana Tech. He might might even get the game against after that, but I don't even think so. I really don't. By, I think by Wake Forest, Dabo, Dabo's been a football coach for so long. Dabo knows. Mm-hmm. Right. He pulled, he's pulled this trigger before. He's and he's this done this before. before. He, he so won't it's not say it out like, loud. Oh, let me do something. Right. He's he's saying what he needs to say, but he went home and they were in the office today, and he was like, "Coach, I I know that we're recruiting Matayo Uyunglele as a defensive end, tight end, <laughs> the younger brother who's going to be a four star, five star kid. We want him to come over here, and I know DJ's a great guy, and I, I wish him well, and you know." Invariably, if you're at the Clemson program, you are a you know very very devout Christian because so too is Dabo. But like you know, I can still pray for him and wish him peace and blessings. But I mean, Kate Klubnik can make these throws, and we got to win games. I mean, if Clemson if Clemson's serious about trying to make a college football playoff, they they got to start Kate Klubnik because I mean, what the, what's going to end up happening here is Clemson's got a really really good defense. A defense is going to keep them into every single game they play this year. Absolutely. And I think Clemson's going to be in the spot where they're going to have to make a decision. Are they cool with winning games like 24 to 10? Or do they want to start like stepping on throats? Because I look at this 41 to 10 score last night, and I come away from it the same way you did, Joey. Like the final score is not indicative of how this game was played. Mm-hmm. Like Clemson wore Georgia Tech out in the fourth quarter. But this, this wasn't a this wasn't a game that Clemson like ran away with thirty one points and Georgia Tech was just like struggling to you know keep up like that's not how this game played out. Clemson I mean, scored fourteen this, points on two drives that racked up a grand total of like twenty three yards. Like this game, it, this game was fourteen to ten in the third quarter. Jeff mm-hmm. threw a touchdown pass. This game was fourteen to ten. At no point last night did I think Georgia Tech was going to win the game. But I was sitting there when it was fourteen to ten, and I'm like, well, Clemson better just like score a touchdown to make it look like a little bit more respectable here because this is not like this is not it and look Dabo knew the team that he had when he made that decision to bench Kelly Bryant and start Trevor Lawrence it was a better team then than he has now and a team that we all knew had a legitimate shot to win a national title and they did but I don't think Clemson's a I, I I don't think based on what I saw out the Clemson receivers and offensive line last night, the Clemson's a national championship team. But given their schedule and what I think is in the rest of the ACC, I think Clemson can absolutely run the table and, and win a college and, and, and get into a college football playoff. Right. And win the ACC. I think that's possible if Cade Clemson is playing quarterback. I don't know if that's possible with DJU. In fact, I don't think it's possible. I think if they play DJU, it's going to be like last year. They got plenty of talent to win nine or ten. Mm-hmm. But. I think if 
they continue down this road with DJU, I, I think they're once again going to fall short of that that college playoff, you know, the college football playoff threshold, which is what they're measured by under Dabo Swinney because mm-hmm. of the program he's built. Yep. And the other thing that I found weird, do, do we know why they outright refused to give Jordan Shipley the ball? Because, like, he is the close um, – well, no, that was going to be wrong. That was going to be wrong. I'm not going to say that. Will Shipley? But, sorry, Will Shipley, not Jordan. I, wow, wow, I went way back there. Sorry. <laughs> I, I, was, wow. I was a little confused for a sorry, second. I, like, I, I, was looking like, I was like, yo, you, the, the running back, you know. But Will George, Jordan me. Shipley, holy shit. Wow. Is Colt McCoy on quarterback. Yeah, Colt Jeez, McCoy's really. favorite target. I know, right? The, the roommates of everything that we heard a million times. Sorry. Will Shipley. Damn good receiver. He'd be the number one in Clemson, too. He would be, absolutely. But Will Shipley can run it. He can catch it. You want to throw all these screens and everything. You want to throw all these checkdowns. You know, hey, call a Texas route or something. But, like, they didn't want to give their best player the ball. I know he's working his way back from an injury. But, like, well, he was injured last year. He's full go this year. I just don't. They are so, they're handcuffing themselves intentionally by doing what they're doing. And by doing what they're doing, I mean by playing Uyunglele at quarterback because everything changed when Klubnik came in. It's like a basketball team that has a bunch of wings and bigs, and all of a sudden you take a dude out and you put a point guard on the floor who can orchestrate how things go. I mean, shoot, look at Chris Paul's career, all the places he went. Look at where they were before he got there, and then he comes on the floor to direct and orchestrate everything and just look at the – exponential growth in performance that was seen. I think we can see that from Clemson. And I think that we are going to see that because we're going to the K for, to the, uh, the club level in September book it. I am with you guys entirely. And I think cam, what you're specifically referencing with that, I think it was 2018 where Kelly Bryant plays four games and then elects to uh, enter the transfer portal or whatever it was back then after game four before game five so that Trevor Lawrence can come in like I I have to think that that's exactly what we're staring down like there is yeah and and maybe maybe Big Cinco decides like no no I don't I don't want to transfer but this is gonna have to be Klubnik's team like this is my 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 big takeaway about Clemson from last night was this is if if DJU is the quarterback of this team it is the same team as last year and they're going to get the same results and and honestly if that they went 10 and 3 like they I think they played in a January bowl game you know whatever like that's that's great but it's not up to Clemson standards so yeah. you know i i just uh, i just think that uh you know DJ needs to be real and uh, make his way over to the tight end meetings. I think that that's uh, <laughs> you know, he needs to do what so many Virginia Tech quarterbacks uh, Jesus refuse God. to do. Oh, I was going to um, call it the, uh, the Felipe it. Franks fast track. The Felipe Franks fast track. The uh, uh, <laughs> what's his name? You know who I'm talking about, Mike? What's his name? Logan th- Thomas. Logan Thomas. There you go. Logan Thomas, who who threw for like 987 yards against Miami in the rain one time, by the way. But yeah, I mean, like. Look, it. I mean, I get that you want to play quarterback. I also wanted to be six foot nine and play, you know, small forward or power forward in the NBA. I'm not that guy, and DJ, neither are you. The Lord didn't make me. Tight end meeting is three doors down. 
Well, we have a, I mean, look, you can keep your same number. We have a seat already ready for you, buddy, but we're turning the keys over to two. We got a trick play in the book for you, too. <laughs> well, hey, look, why not? You know, double pass. Like, I mean, look, he has a strong arm. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not like a pinpoint passer, but look, you can do double passes with him. You can do um, all kinds of stuff. Sure. Why not? Hey, put him in at holder. You got a whole, you know, of you know, vocab or a, a full book of trick plays there and everything that you can run. I mean, like, you know, you can be the personal protector on punt team and all of a sudden go up under center and then, or just step up and, and what I mean, there's so many things that you can do, but being an elite quarterback, unfortunately, is not one of them. The personal protector on, on uh punt team. That's, it's very profitable from what I've heard. <laughs> also you got that going for him. My, my final thought here, and then we'll move on was how I was, I was shook when they, they, they brought up the graphic showing how DJU in 2020 had two starts, finished the year with 914 yards, passing five touchdowns, no picks. Mm-hmm. Last year, he had 13 starts, finished the year with a little over 2,200 yards, passing nine touchdowns and 10 picks. And it left me thinking, what happened to that guy from 2020 that we saw carve up Notre Dame. He went for almost 500 yards in South Bend. Uh, he had another really good start. I think it was Boston College they played when when Lawrence had COVID, and he looked incredible. And we have never seen it again. And I don't know what happened, where that guy went, or is he still a thing? But it doesn't really seem that way. Every week that become those performances become more and more the exception than the rule. Um, I just think that that was. Yeah. You know, we were talking about uh, a wonderful evening that I had on South Beach one time before we got on here, but a different one. Um, my, I have a very, very good friend who worked at Bacardi for years. So we got tickets to the Shore Club for New Year's <laughs> years ago. $25,000 tickets for the free ski because of the homeboy hookup. It was a wonderful, wonderful thing. Unreal. And oh, unreal. My goodness. Now, I have no a... idea. Where, I have no idea where this is going, but I can't wait to find out. <laughs> But I'm saying it was incredible. It was memorable, legendary. We still talk about it. And the next few times that we went out, we tried to chase the moonlight. We tried to catch that moment and make it happen again. But it only happened that one New Year's. That is so the case with DJ's performance from those two games a couple of years ago. You saw it. It was wonderful for Clemson fans. It was incredible. It was memorable, notable, all of those things. And they're trying to chase the moonlight. They're trying to get that same thing again. That moment is fleeting and it's gone. And it's not coming back, guys. Tight end room, three rodent down, club level, September, mark it down. Clemson 41, Georgia Tech 10. Uh, we, I could keep going on about this game. I've got some more thoughts. Not all bad for Georgia Tech. I think there's some some stuff to be to be gained from this game, and there's maybe a chance that things are looking up. But, you know, we'll see if Jeff Collins can improve to above 500 against FCS teams in his career next week against Western Carolina. That's a I, wouldn't little, bet on, I wouldn't bet on that. Neither would I. That's a little nugget for the preview there. Um, yeah. Syracuse 31, Louisville 7. I'm going to call this in the fine category for the conference just because it was conference-on-conference <laughs> conference stuff. But uh, a lot of the discussion around this has not been, wow, Syracuse is pretty good. It's been like, what the hell was that, Louisville? Um, I love I, I, I love how everybody was so high on Louisville coming into the year. That was really cute. They dude. are toast. Satterfield is toast. 
you cannot lose to that Syracuse team with that offense where you know exactly what they're running with Sean Tucker and Garrett Schrader. You cannot lose that game 31 to 7. That was an abhorrent performance offensively, defensively, all system, a, a total system error, mm-hmm. absolute catastrophe. Satterfield is toast there. Like, how, how can I, I don't get it to have that showing in the opener? Just absolutely pathetic. Pathetic they were absolutely not ready to play. Pathetic, just not ready to play. Which, I mean, if you're Scott Satterfield and, hey man, you did your part in creating this hot seat. And it wasn't all, it didn't have everything to do with what was happening on the field either. Like, you create this hot seat for yourself by going and saying, oh, I want to take a look at the South Carolina job. I want to do this. I want to do that. This guy's a moron. He didn't have the team ready to play, once again. How many times have... You know, have we watched Louisville games over the last couple of years where you look at their roster and you're like, that's a really talented roster. And by the way, Satterfield is still recruiting well, by the way. He's got a really good oh, yeah. 2023 recruiting class. He's still recruiting well. Is that Satterfield times- or the collective? Well, it, it doesn't it doesn't matter, right? We've seen situations like this where, we're, where we think the writing's on the wall, right? And we're like, man, this coaching situation is not going to work out. And they're not recruiting all that great either, right? Point to Fuente, point to Jeff Collins to a degree. Now we're looking at Satterfield. We're like, he's recruiting at a different level than those two guys I just mentioned, right? In similar coaching situations. And they are so incredibly screwed because he cannot get them ready to play a football game. Yeah, That's my that was, takeaway. That was what was what I was going to lead with because moving forward after the end of the Atlantic and Coastal Divisions, Louisville is one of Miami's three permanent crossover teams. It. Doesn't really make sense, but fine. But that gives them an added recruiting pitch to come down here and say, hey, not only are we on TV a lot, but you're going to come down here and play two times in four years or three times in five, depending on like what year it is. I mean, maybe it's only two times in five, but it could be three, right? So your family, your friends and everything. So you can go away and come up here and look. There have been plenty of guys from South Florida who've gone and been and done well at Louisville. Mm-hmm. Theodore Bridgewater, you know Teddy mm-hmm. Bridgewater, leading the list. Tutu Atwell, lead, you know um, Lamar Jackson, lots, Lamar Jackson from Pompano. I mean, hey, yeah, you know, like lots and lots and lots, you know, on top of those guys as well. So they're using that to their advantage and they're recruiting really well. And so you look at the roster talent and you're like. Louisville is bringing this and Syracuse is bringing that. And I mean, yeah, they got a really good running back, but okay, cool. And then, yeah, they get, you know, their, their teeth kicked in. I mean, yeah, he's in a real bad spot. And I mean, like if you're not producing now, I don't know if it would be Miami necessarily, but there's a lot of other power five teams. There's a lot of other teams in the ACC. There's a lot of teams in the SEC are going to start sniffing around some of these recruits that are making up the basis and foundation of this good recruiting class that either, you know, Satterfield or the collective are, you know, putting together and, you know, either way, Hey, uh, you know, I don't necessarily think that he's going to be around that long, especially since he was loud about his desire to look at other jobs. Like, you know, I don't necessarily know that they go after Brian Brom again after this, but you know, I think Louisville Mm -hmm. can do better. They should do better. And I mean, in the immediate term, they should be better than that. Um, also, I'm not sure if they brought the right quarterback with them. I don't know if it was McHale or Malik this week at, at quarterback. Oh, man. Um, but uh, whichever one played, 
McHale siding. I think. It was McHale siding. They need Malik back at quarterback for this, you know, uh, moving forward for sure. I think it was a uh, a Batman Bruce Wayne thing that that it was like a change out at oh. halftime. He was actually, like, I thought Cunningham was actually pretty decent in the first half, and then the second half he had three straight possessions with two interceptions and a fumble. Um, first interception I didn't think was terrible. He had a one on one over the top and. Uh, it, it, his receiver, let's put it this way, D. Wiggins, uh, Cam, you remember him. Uh, D. Wiggins, I transfer. Hey, there you go, another <laughs> South Florida kid. Mm-hmm. D. Wiggins is open, and uh, then there's a, a safety that kind of drops into the the zone that the ball's being thrown into. I don't know if D. Wiggins didn't see him or just didn't really want any part of him, but like the the safety just camped under the ball, and D. Wiggins did nothing to stop him, and so he just you know that was an interception. So I guess it goes on Malik's stat sheet, but. <laughs> D, well, you got to help him. <laughs> I mean, that was never his strong suit, but also D. Wiggins and his high school teammate and also former Miami Hurricane Mark Pope led the ACC in drop rate mm-hmm. um, before. So not, a was, yeah. Yeah. not a good a stat. Yeah, a couple years ago. Yeah, uh, yeah it was, uh, I think, 19 and 17 or 18 and 16 percent, respectively, <laughs> um, between the two of them. So, I mean – even if he went over there, like, I mean, it's not like he would have caught the ball, but like, yeah, he's, he's tall and that's all kind of a thing. Like he's six, three, two ten, And you figured like, he's going to, you know, mo- you know, beef up and da-da-da. like, no. He, and, and speaking of guys who can only do one or a limited range of things, D Wiggins is elite at running post routes against Florida state. <laughs> Look, I mean, like, oddly specific. <laughs> I mean, I, I will say post routes because he did catch a couple of post route uh, long uh, bombs and then mm-hmm. touchdowns against other teams, but specifically from the left side, from the X uh, uh, position, from the left side of the formation coming to the middle. Again, Even like, more specific. You're describing like, exactly what he was doing on that play. <laughs> I mean, like it's the thing, and like when when I write, well, he catches those against Florida State. He, I mean, he, he looking sure up. I mean, but then also he's open by four or five steps, but um, I write recruiting notebooks. You know, I started as a recruiting blogger. I still love it, and I still do it every year. And one of the things I look at at receivers when I go through their film is what is what are the routes that they run? You know, what can they do? D. Wiggins, like, he eventually was running stop routes, slants, and posts, and that's it. So, I mean, okay, so they, they went to the well, and they – dialed up the one thing that he can do and then Syracuse is like hey we've seen this because that's all that's on his highlight tape so we're going to camp where he's going to be like we don't need to align ourselves over there no no because he's going to come right here sit under it and, and he's not a physical player like that so yeah interception it happens it surprises me that Dino Babers watches film I that that's the part that surprises me a little bit considering how Syracuse is looking yeah I yeah Louisville I mean just rough in a lot of ways to to I mean, defensively, they got pushed around a lot by the Syracuse offense. And, Mike, you alluded to this. I, I think we talked about this a little bit last year, but, like, this, the second half of last year, Syracuse's offense kind of started working. But it started working in the weirdest way where, like, almost everything is either Garrett Schrader or it is Sean Tucker. And I don't mean Garrett Schrader throwing the ball because that's what quarterbacks do. No, no, no. It's either Sean Tucker run, Garrett Schrader run, or Garrett Schrader pass to Sean Tucker. Like, 
Like, nobody else touches the Three ball points. in this offense, and I don't know why nobody can stop it. Like, there's only two guys you got to defend at any given time, and yet, it, like, they just keep moving the ball and scoring points. It's bizarre to me. And this, they let Schrader they let Schrader throw for 236 against them, too. I, I know. Well, and your leading receiver was Sean Tucker. Sean Tucker. <laughs> I... I don't know. It's it's bizarre to me. Credit to Syracuse's defense. They did look really good. They they played with a lot of energy. They flew around. Um, I know they dealt with some injury issues last year. This is apparently what they look like healthy, which at that point, I mean, that's that's a, a, a big difference maker for them. Um, I don't know. I think if I'm looking at this again, the, the discussion has all been about, you know, there were expectations around Louisville. Louisville obviously just gets stomped here. In my mind, the only way that sh- – that Scott Satterfield is keeping his job is if we are at the end of the year looking back at this game and saying what happened because it would imply that the following 11 games you know we saw something totally different this is a weird week one thing I don't know that's that's the only thing I can come up with otherwise I think yeah like you guys are saying I think he's cooked we're we're yeah so as I look really quickly at UCF and then home to Florida State the next two Mm -hmm. weeks uh, with the way that those teams are looking, you are staring right down the double barrel of zero and three, buddy. I was gonna like, say, man, Florida you, State's in line for a pretty nice September if Louisville's gonna look this bad. You better be hoping you're coming off that game against Florida State, wondering what happened in the Syracuse game, right? And if not, yeah, yeah. they're cooked. If, yeah, if, I mean, if, if it's three games of the same spot. thing, they're cooked. But you know, and, and then further down, yeah, you got a couple of road games. But after the bye week, they end like this. Pitt, Wake Forest, James Madison, who's better than you would think. So, okay, cool. At Clemson, NC State, and at Kentucky for their last six. So you're looking – I mean, yeah, you're looking at probably one and five. And the, look, ooh, look uh, man, James Madison scored 55 on Middle Tennessee State, really bad football program. If they could score 55 on Middle Tennessee State in their first year in the FBS, man, they, they can score on Louisville. That's mm-hmm. what I'm saying. So you're, you're hoping now, looking ahead for one and five after the bye – Oh boy! Does, nah, I mean, he's, he's fired. He's fired if they're one. But no, nah, bro. I, I'm, bro. I, I, if they're one five, he's he's out. Out. I'm saying out, even like, out in October. That. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Does he make it to Halloween? Even yeah, that's like, what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. He might be out in mid October if it gets that bad. Yeah. Wonder what Jeff Brom is doing. Um, uh, Mike, we do have one more thing that we need. Blowing to... games against Penn State. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's Penn State. This is. Anyways, uh, we do have a, <laughs> we, we do have one more thing we needed to do here before we move on. Uh, we have a new segment this year, um, and, and we're still workshopping the name, so this might oh, change. I forgot, I forgot about this, so no. <laughs> we have a new segment this year. It is called the Sean Tucker postgame Twitter summary, um, and this is a tweet that is straight from Syracuse running back Sean Tucker's Twitter account. It reads, and I am not making this up. I am not misreading this. I just want to, I, I'm going to read this as it reads. Last night, we started the 22 season at home, and the fans really showed out. We won Syracuse 31, Louisville 7. <laughs> I'm pleased with my performance and outcome of the game. I rushed for 98 yards, touchdown, and six receptions for 85 yards, touchdown. We balled out, and we're just getting started. Hashtag pleased, but with EA being 34 for his jersey number. Sean Tucker trying out for a job with the AP, I believe. Uh, he is practicing these post-game recaps it's like at a middle school football game where you like go on instagram after game and like 
j- just so all the girls at school can see like what a good game you had. Like that's <laughs> that's Sean Tucker tweeting. Good tweet, Sean. Good stuff. Yeah, Syracuse thirty one. So we're on that side for Syracuse thirty one, Louisville seven. We're going to continue into I. Uh, this is somewhere between fine and bad. Uh, these next couple of games. And, and the real summary of these two games is what the hell happened in the state of North Carolina this weekend? Uh, <laughs> number 13, NC State 21, East Carolina 20, and North Carolina 63, App State 61. I'm not to- – they were wildly different games with almost the same outcome. Um, I I don't know how to talk about them together but also separately. Um, NC State, like this game, they should have put away long before they did. They did not. They let East Carolina hang around and then got lucky from hashtag college kicker things uh, to end up winning that game. North Carolina, with some of the worst defense and coaching that I have seen in a long time, almost gave that game away multiple times to App State. Goodness gracious. Uh, This did not make me feel better about either of these teams this weekend. They didn't lose, but this is not a good look for the ACC to be you know, staring down the barrel of uh, a couple of G5 road losses here. Every once in a while, and by every once in a while, I mean like a couple times every Saturday, I have a tweet that I write that like makes me laugh before I even hit send. And the one that really made me laugh is Mac Brown should go see what Jay Bateman's up to. Carolina's defense is atrocious. They are way, way worse with Chizik than they were with Bateman. I guess like, okay, it's, it's two games, right? But like, you let Florida A&M hang around for a while, right? Like You let them hang around for a while. And then giving up 61 points to App State, there were more points in this football game than there were when the two teams played on the basketball court last season. This was... No, I, think it was the, I think it was equal, but a different distribution. I think the Carolina basketball was like 70 to 51. So I think like the total was <laughs> near the same for the game. But yeah, you just take 10 points from App State. And e- put either it direction. Either oh, direction. Yeah, 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 Fair yeah, enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Point being, like, <laughs> what the hell was that, Carolina? Like, look, everybody thought App State, you know, you're welcoming Carolina to Boone, and this is going to be a tough spot for the Tar Heels. I bet North Carolina money line in this game, and I was feeling damn good about it, like, halfway through the third quarter because I saw Carolina go up 17. I'm like, all right, this is really good. Then they had a 40-point fourth quarter that they gave up defensively. And – Man, oh, man, I think Carolina is just going to have to play games like this all year long if they want to have a chance to get to a bowl game because their offense is really fun to watch. Drake May, really good quarterback. He's going to be even better when he gets more reps under his belt. But I actually like the way that Drake May has looked in terms of, like, I don't know, hanging in the pocket and making a throw that Sam Howell wouldn't make. Like, Sam Howell, the, the biggest difference I see between Drake May and Sam Howell is that Drake May is not afraid to get hit. Sam Howell, he bailed out of the pocket much too early the last couple seasons. Like That was the, the one obvious thing when watching Carolina's offense play. And Howell would still make plays with his legs. He'd still make plays outside of the pocket. I mean, Howell was still a very good quarterback. But Drake May is willing to sit in there, take a hit, and then make a throw down the field, which is an entirely different dynamic to the Carolina offense considering how their offensive line has struggled. That's my takeaway from Carolina's offense. I think Drake May is a is a better fit to what they're trying to do. Defensively, they're a disaster. So, like, I'm not sure what way this season's going to go for Carolina, but they can score. That's clear. As far as NC State's concerned, really poor first showing. And it's kind of funny because this is what NC State does when they're ranked. Like, 
they they do this when they have expectations and they're ranked. They play in games like this on the road, and we'll get into the whole group of five thing. Stop playing road group of five games. Like NC State, Carolina, we'll get into my Hokies here shortly. Like, stop playing games on the road in week one against group of five opponents. It doesn't work out very well. So, like, stop doing it. NC State, yeah, they certainly should have put the game away, Joey. They also should have lost, right? Like, you mentioned that the East Carolina kicker, oh, God, what's his name? Uh, I scroll down, and I had this before the podcast. Owen Daffer? Owen Daffer. That, that's a name. Um, he missed, <laughs> always missed the, the kickers, field. man. It, it's all it's always the kickers, right? He he missed the field goal. He missed an extra point that would have tied the game late. NC State is very very lucky to be one and zero, and NC State was a very popular pick to win the Atlantic. And I hate to bring Clemson back up, but if Clemson plays Cade Klubnik, there ain't no way in hell NC State is is beating Clemson and winning the Atlantic if they're this playing is, like this. If they are playing like this, my God, they might go seven and five. This was a terrible performance by NC State. They better look a hell of a lot better here moving forward, or else they're going to be in trouble. Yeah, I mean, I agree with all of that. And on the Drake May point, uh, the difference, uh, especially in terms of staying in the pocket, is the fact that Drake May is a legit six four and some change, and Sam yeah. is six feet on a good day. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. I mean, like, so yeah, like. He has to move. I, I don't even know. Maybe he measured in at six one of the combine. Fine, but like that difference in physical size is is really important in that difference between them. Their defense is. I don't even want to call it Swiss cheese because I like Swiss cheese, and that's like denigrating towards Swiss cheese. But like, my goodness, man! Like it was like every time I looked around, like you know, App State was scoring again, and I mean, even having been down two scores after returning and you know uh onside kick uh well no that was a score uh but then they just give up more and more and more points like that like i hope that that is the carolina defense that faces my miami hurricanes later this season um so i, I would look forward to that but no drake may is a, a very very good player he's going to be very very good uh down the line I, I mean obviously it's just getting started so he's not all the way there but he will be um nc state yeah, they tried to find every way to lose that game. If your guy Drake or whatever Daffer, uh, Owen Daffer, Owen Daffer, if he would have made a kick somewhere, um, we're talking about overtime. If not uh, a win, just pick a kick, any kick, the extra point, <laughs> that field goal, make one. That's all we need. I mean, that was all that was needed. You know what I mean? So just pick a kick and make it, please. Mm-hmm. I feel and, good. I feel good about East Carolina in overtime, by the way, if he makes that. Oh, my God, yeah. Absolutely. You know? So, I mean, it's just not – I mean, neither team really gives you warm fuzzies, but maybe, hopefully, for them and ostensibly then – or extending that out for the conference, this is a win your clunkers, we don't talk about it, and we move forward kind of a thing, survive in advance, maybe. But uh, there are glaring issues for both programs right now. The, the thing that really stuck out to me for NC State was if you look at their second-half offense, they start out with a six-play drive, gain 19 yards, punt it. Then the following two drives, they get the ball inside like the three-yard line, ran probably a combined seven plays. They lost a fumble on one drive, and the other, the other drive they get a turnover on downs at like the one-yard line. And it was like every single play was the same thing, and they were getting the same results. It was like, yep. maybe try something other than inside zone after it's failed the last five times you've run it. 
so that that drove me nuts. And then they get the ball back with a uh, a touchdown lead with about six minutes left in the game. Two plays, interception. And then ECU goes down, scores a touchdown, misses the extra point. They get the ball back with less, less than three minutes to go. Three and out, ran 30 seconds off the clock. Like, NC State's offense got ultra-reductive and, and useless there in the second half, and that's the thing that almost cost them the game. And I like, guess they might have thought maybe we can be vanilla, you know, we can, you know, just kind of yeah. do whatever. But as, you know, to your point, there were so many instances where they went vanilla or were unsuccessful. Why would you think that that would be the thing that would all of a sudden work? You know, it just, yeah, the, again, it was just a lot that was problematic for them. Yep. So I, I, I was wholly unimpressed with NC State, but again, Greenville's been kind of a house of horrors for that program historically. So maybe between that week one jitters, something or other. I mean, the game was in control for a lot of it into the second half. It was just things got dicey late, and uh, they, they were they got lucky, honestly, to hold off ECU in so many ways. Um, you know, so I, I, I don't know. Again, I'm going to try not to overreact too much to this being that it was week one. I know that doesn't make for the best podcasting content for me, but I, l- let's keep it. You know, I, I, we'll see what they do next week. I don't know. It, it wasn't good, though, and, and it wasn't impressive. It's was not they, good. They should have won this game comfortably going away, and uh, they almost lost. And so that's not great, but they're one to know. North Carolina, like y'all said, I mean, Drake May through two games has really impressed me against not the best defensive competition he's going to see all year, but looks good so far. And one of the things that I've been really excited about is that he's actually distributing the ball around to a lot of different receivers instead of just Josh Downs or run it. Um, So that's been an improvement as well. But, well, you also had to this week because Josh Downs was suspended or out or whatever that broke like right before the game. So. Yeah, it was like an like an hour left in college game day, and it was like, oh, Josh Downs isn't dressed. It was like, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, you know that matters. But yeah, it's like oh, yeah, yeah. Thanks for letting us know, though. Yeah, um, like, Jesus. But like you guys said, I mean, Drake May has done well, and, and this Carolina offense looks great. The defense looks terrible, um, and. The thing that was pointed out on, on another show that I listened to but and, and look at it a little more is, yeah, they replaced Jay Bateman with Gene Chizik. You know who else they've replaced on that defensive staff? Pretty much nobody. Like, they replaced the coordinator, but all the position coaches are all still there. It's like it's all the same stuff, guys missing tackles, using bad angles in the wrong positions. Like, that's that's where your defense is still bad. Is it doesn't matter who's calling plays if they're still getting bad instruction. So if you're capable, if you're capable of getting like two or three stops against North Carolina's offense, you're going to beat them. Mm-hmm. Like what was? Don't, don't shoot yourself. What was the, the team? Butt. What was the team that did the musical chairs a couple years ago? Was it Michigan State under D'Antonio? Yeah, it was. Yep. Where the they were just staff. like we're gonna. Yeah, we're gonna keep everybody, but we're just gonna have them coach something different. At least that is. I mean, it's the lowest bar of, you know, to clear of like trying something. But yeah, Caroline was just like, cool, we're going to change one dude and nothing else. Not the scheme, not the philosophy, not the nomenclature, not the, you know, other assistant coaches. We're just going to change the figurehead dude. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, not great. But I mean, they have the they have the worst defense in the power five that I've seen through yeah. a week, uh, basically a week and a half. Right. Week zero. I, I, Georgia Tech fans silently fist pumping in their cars right now. Yeah, right. They're like, Georgia oh, Tech was look, man, competent. 
they were hitting too. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. the physical, yeah. like it was just a thing where eventually they just got worn down because Clemson has got depth. You know mm-hmm. what depth. I mean? Depth mm-hmm. and like the the quality that the the quality of the players and the depth because they didn't lose much, especially on defense. And you know that defense, you know you get two block punts and you know do all those other things. And eventually, you know, like yeah, they had enough on offense, you know, to give it to Will, not Jordan Shipley, and the other running back and everything. Um, <laughs> But no, Georgia Tech looked very competent. I mean, way more competent than North Carolina. My goodness. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and with I don't know with 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 Carolina, it's it's like there, there's no amount of play calling that you can do that's going to fix that your secondary won't cover guys. Like, right. you know, there, right. there's simple stuff like that. So I, I don't know. It, it seems like we kind of know what we're going to get from Carolina this year, and it's probably going to get worse as they play better competition. But uh, that'll be a fun thing to monitor and gamble on. So. Uh, Carolina 63, App State 61. Let's get to the ugly. Rutgers 22, Boston College 21. My goodness, Boston College. Uh, not like Losing to Rutgers in, in and of itself is maybe not the worst thing, but it's the how that is like, good Lord. Uh, I believe it was the, the first drive Boston College had in the second half was where they had the ball like on their own 20 yard line, got penalized, pushed back to their 10. And then there was like a shotgun snap that never got off the ground that Rutgers fell on it and had like a six yard touchdown drive. Um, so a, a team that really wasn't moving the ball very well for most of the game, you just gave them a freebie. And then they had to put together one drive at the very end with about two minutes left, go about 96 yards and you let them. And that's how you yep. lost the game. Uh, and that's, Man, that is that is a pretty brutal way to lose in my mind for for Boston College. Yeah, I mean, I got I got two thoughts here. I got three thoughts. Number, uh, let's start with the good for Boston College. Say Flowers still really really good. Okay, so they got that going for them. Um, my other two thoughts here: Boston College's offensive line. Look, we knew it was going to be bad coming into this year because really all they had returning was Christian Mahogany, and then he got hurt towards ACL. And now it's really, really bad and just young. And they got some veteran guys at receiver and quarterback, stuff like that. But like their offensive line's bad. And the defense, the way the defense kind of folded up in the second half is not an encouraging sign considering the varying degrees of like which this offense is going to look like throughout the course of the season. BC's got some issues, man, through and again. One week, so maybe they figure it out. But like offensive line was their weakness, and it looks even worse than I anticipated it would. So those are kind of like my takeaways from this. Is like BC has to go to Blacksburg this weekend, and Joey, we'll talk about this on the preview later this week. The one thing I will say about that game is that Virginia Tech, like, and we'll talk about them in a moment. But like their front seven played pretty well against Old Dominion, and Boston College's weakness with the offensive line. Like, if they don't get that figured out, that could swing what will be a very close game in Blacksburg. So, like, BC's got to win, like, some of those, like, toss-up 50-50 conference games if they want to make a bowl game. And my big takeaway is, like, I'm not sure how they're going to be able to do that if they can't protect Phil Dracovic. Mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of my big takeaway from this game against Rutgers. Yeah, I think that they're really counting games closely now because I think that to make a bowl game, this was like etched in stone for them. You know what I mean? And, and it's going to be rough. I mean, they do have some star power. I mean, Phil Dracovic, you know, former four-star, five-star Notre Dame, you know, transferred over to yeah, the quarterback. Zay Flowers, 
who, <clears throat> wink, wink, nudge, nudge, didn't stay for the NIL money. No, of course not. No, what are you talking about? I stayed for the love. Right, buddy. <laughs> um, very, very good. Um, apart from that, a team that is built philosophically on physicality, lacking physicality, is a danger will robinson danger situation because yeah i don't think that they have it i mean if you look back to you know their offensive line for years and aj Dillon, you know and i forget the name of the running back who came after him who was also that same size it's that team looks different than the paradigm of how that team is built and that's problematic because you're not changing it for something specific you're not changing it to update and modernize the offense because you went smaller and faster and whatever whatever it's just that we're not anywhere near as boston college the optimal roster construction to do what we set out to do how we set out to do it and that's the biggest thing for me even through watching this and you know obviously what you guys said as well that's the biggest thing for me that gives me pause about boston college mm-hmm Zay Flowers, huge game here. I mean, 10 catches, 117 yards, and two scores. He's dynamic, man. He can play. So good. He, he is so good. Um, I, I will say, I mean, there, there is a chance that some of the issues we saw here, particularly for Boston College running the ball, is potentially related that Boston that Rutgers might have a pretty good defensive front. Um, I mean, they're playing for Greg Schiano. I mean, he's a pretty well-regarded defensive mind in a lot of ways, I think. So give Rutgers some credit there. But I'm with you, Cam. I mean, if if Boston College can't put together a run game like we're used to seeing from them, man, that's not going to play well when we start getting later into the year, especially as they play home games in Boston in November. I mean, yep, it ain't easy to sit there and throw the ball around 50 times a game in, in Boston in November. So, you know, it's nice to have a run game, and that's something that they've historically really built this program on. Um I mean, defensively, they were they were pretty good all day, with the exception of kind of just one drive in in a lot of ways. So, I don't know this this was a, a pretty big swing game for them in terms of you know win totals and, and expectations and all that. You know, we'll, we'll see we'll see how long it, it lasts. Thankfully, I mean, the the good news for Boston College, I think, is that Phil Dracovic did look healthy in this game. He yeah. looked a lot yeah. better than he looked at the end of last year when he came back and was clearly not healthy. So, still beat Virginia Tech. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> I Threw mean, for like thirty-five yards. Yeah, he beat he beat Georgia Tech too. It was it was great. Um, it, but you know, we'll we'll see, we'll see. Um, it just again, I don't think that that losing this game was the problem. It was the how um, that that really kind of sucked yeah. for Boston College and for the conference. So um, that that's all I got on that game. Anything else? Good with me. Yeah, keep moving here. Rutgers twenty-two, Boston College twenty-one. Um, Rough out-of-conference loss there. Speaking of rough out-of-conference losses, Old Dominion 20, Virginia Tech 17. I, I will say this, too. This is another game that um, almost in the territory that NC State almost ended up in is where Virginia Tech yeah. did end up. The Hokies should have won this game, Mike. Like This is a game that they had multiple opportunities to put away. They never did. And they shot themselves in the foot time and time again and found a way to lose this game for the second time in a row against Old Dominion, if I'm not mistaken. Or second at Old Dominion. Is that what second, it was? Second time, second time at Old Dominion. Mm-hmm. They've won they've won in Blacksburg since then against Old Dominion. But mm-hmm. either way, it's 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 not good. I can keep this pretty quick because this is and pretty brief because 
it's real easy, right? Like, Virginia Tech had 15 penalties. Eight of them were procedural. Delay game, false start, illegal shift, illegal, illegal formations. Like, half your penalties were procedural. Like, that's coaching. Mm-hmm. That's on the players. Now, everybody's saying, oh, well, you know, the cupboard was left bare. You know, Virginia Tech, yeah, they got, they got some talent with their starters, but they don't have any depth, and that's a Fuente problem. He didn't recruit well. All that stuff's true. That had nothing to do with this football game. This was coaching. This is on the new staff. This is on Brent Pry for not and his staff for not having Virginia Tech ready to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I haven't even talked about the five turnovers yet. One of them was a Hail Mary. We throw that one out. Um, but you look at kind of the other turnovers here, right? Like there was a red zone interception, right, that you absolutely cannot have. Uh, wide side of the field, Wells throws it a little bit behind. His, I think it was Dewan Lofton's intended target interception. You, you don't get points there. You have uh, Will Kakavitsis. He gets called for offensive pass interference inside the 10-yard line, pushes Virginia Tech back, kills that drive on, on what would have put Virginia Tech inside the 5-yard line on that play, kills that drive, pushes Virginia Tech back. They snap it over the long, that long snapper snaps it over the holder's head. Old Dominion returns it for a touchdown. They had Virginia Tech had five turnovers. That was one of them. It led to an Old Dominion score directly. Another one was a Hail Mary, and then there were a few other really, really bad turnovers. Um, there was some miscommunication on a route. Two receivers ran into each other. Grant Wells threw a, a flag route that no receiver, it was obvious miscommunication. No receiver was there. Don't really put that on Wells. But the overall theme here is that these were all fixable mistakes for Virginia Tech. Old Dominion did not beat Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech beat themselves. Mm-hmm. That's the takeaway from this football game. And I, I said, you know, I, I said on the Virginia Tech preview, I thought the Hokies could go seven and five. Um, I thought six and six was fair. I don't think the ceiling is much higher than that. It's certainly not higher than that now because this is one of the games they absolutely had to have to get to seven. I don't know how they're going to do that now. So I think, I think reasonably, like they can make a bowl game if they clean up the mistakes. The problem is that. We need to see it quickly, right? Like, we need to see them clean it up at home against Boston College. Like, there's nothing that I saw in this particular football game that makes me think, like, Virginia Tech couldn't make a bowl game, right? Because I don't think that they're, like, outright, like, don't have the talent to beat Old Dominion. Their issue is shooting themselves in the foot and not being ready to play. If that's an overall theme throughout the year, Virginia Tech, this could get ugly quick. Um, it's probably going to end up somewhere in the middle, right? Where Virginia Tech wins like five or six games. Um, and people ha- who had them, there were some people in the Virginia Tech fan base saying, oh, they could win eight. I'd never thought that. This is not a roster with the depth at offensive tackle, a quarterback that could do that. I was going to say, they, may- they had, maybe they, they have the talent. They don't have enough talent to overcome shooting themselves in the foot like this. Correct. And they don't, and they just got to figure it out against Old Dominion. Like, that's the bottom line. Like, you got to beat Old Dominion. I don't what a phrase that, that is. <laughs> like, yeah, beat Old Dominion, right? Like, figure it out against Old Dominion. Wow. <laughs> I mean, wow, yeah. I mean, it's just Virginia Tech, Virginia Tech beat themselves here. No doubt about it. That's my takeaway. Look, I'm just going to back up what you guys said. I was at the Miami game in the press box, and I actually put this on. Uh, I was kind of, you know, split screening it on my laptop and so in the last part of the fourth quarter. So I saw what happened, but I didn't uh, watch more much more than that. So I'm going to have to defer to you guys there. But I'm going to also just be left with the phrase. Yeah, we just had to figure it out against Old Dominion. That yeah, it's horrible. It's horrible. The, the one thing I'm going to keep an eye on here, 
for Virginia Tech moving forward is if if Grant Wells is going to be the quarterback. You mentioned, I mean, he th- he had four interceptions in this game. One of them was on the hail mary at the end. So I, I don't know if you really fully count that. That's not a normal throw that with normal amount of risk, all that. But the other three, I mean, this is a guy who had thirteen interceptions last year and was one of the most intercepted quarterbacks of the last couple of years in the FBS. So that if that's not something that he can shake, that's going to be a problem. And once again, again, is this team talented enough to overcome repeatedly shooting themselves in the foot? Probably not. And that's the kind of thing that's going to be repeatedly shooting yourself in the foot is if Grant Wells is turning the ball over like it's his job. They're going to have to play Jason Brown, <clears throat> the South Carolina transfer, if that's the case, because the upside's not there with Jason Brown, but you at least know he's not going to like make the mistakes from an interception standpoint that Wells is going to. And you can mm-hmm. explain away a couple of the picks. One of them's a Hail Mary. One of them is, you know, two receivers run into each other and you're throwing a corner route that nobody's there. Like that's probably not on Wells, right? But the other two, it's like one's in the red zone. One, you threw it like a million miles per hour at your running back. Like he's not going to catch that pass five yards, five yards away from you. Like those are things that you, those are errors you can't make. So yep. I come away very disappointed with the performance overall. Makes sense. Shockingly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Sh- I, I, shocking. Shockingly. I'm not surprised at all. I'm not surprised at all. I picked Old Dominion to cover, I think it was what, seven and a half, eight, but got down to six pregame, which I didn't really get that. I didn't understand that pregame. Yeah. Why it got down like that. It went from seven and a half to six in like a twenty four hour period. I did not know why. And I, I guess those folks were right who had money coming in on ODU. I would have been a lot less gung ho if the number were were there when I was picking it. Um, right. I, I did not expect this to happen, though. I'll, I'll say that I, yeah. I was not thinking Virginia Tech was going to lose this game outright. So that is a uh, that is a tough situation. Old Dominion twenty, Virginia Tech seventeen. A couple more games throughout the ACC. Uh, Cam, your Miami Hurricanes played. Uh, did <laughs> they won seventy to thirteen over Bethune Cookman in? What I, I I'm not gonna lie, didn't watch a second of it. Sounded like the least watchable, interesting game of the weekend. They just absolutely took care of business from the start. They were up 42 to 10 at halftime. I mean, got to feel good about what Miami looked like on Saturday. Yeah, you know, it was the you know maiden voyage of the Cristobal era and everything. So just wanted to see game day operations be tightened up. You want to see the things that plagued this team under Manny Diaz not rear their ugly heads. Uh, you know, terrible tackling and things like that. There were a couple tackling issues with a couple of the older players um, in a, in a couple spots. Uh, but, you know, credit to Bethune-Cookman, they do have some FBS transfers. So, you know, you're playing, you know, some guys who played up, you know, to the, you know, Power 5, G5 level sometimes. So, you know, a couple of those guys making some moves didn't really feel badly about uh, – I was actually talking to somebody next to me in the press box about, you know, what I thought the score was going to be. And he was like, oh, it's going to be – 13 or 17. I was like, they're not going to get in the end zone. And that's when they ran the wrinkle. So they had basically been running mesh and like a flat route uh, behind it. But then, you know, they go mesh wheel. uh, And then the defender flows to the flat. And he's like, oh, this is going to be pick six. But then, you know, you zig when they zag, you throw, you know, over his head. And it's a touchdown. And the guy turns to me and I was like, so you basically had, you predicted that they were going to have a perfect play to get in the end zone. (laughs) fine cool i was wrong you were right okay cool fine like you took a shot in the dark (laughs) exactly come on you know um but you know there were a couple of errors i saw uh starting center went out with an injury for a play backup center um 
is left-handed as opposed to right-handed. And that led to the one turnover that we had was a fumble on the snap. Uh, It never got where it needed to be, you know, with the different, you know, variation of of right-handed versus left-handed right inside the five there. That was the only drive up until the end of game drive where we didn't score a touchdown. Uh, Miami was a hundred percent on third down. Um, You know, you had some explosive kick returns from Keyshawn Smith. You saw a variety of players making plays. A lot of the guys we got in the transfer portal in Miami was uh, really heavy in the transfer portal, like we have been since that has come uh, into being, but also just at the top of the roster as well, guys who were starting, you know what I mean? So Akeem Mesador, uh, native Canadian who was at uh, West Virginia before he came down uh, to Miami, he was disruptive in the best way possible. Um, You know, Tyler Van Dyke was pretty pitch perfect. Um, There was a pass breakup on his first pass and he had two throwaways and that comprised his three incompletions, which were the three incompletions of the day. Jay Garcia came off the bench and went eight for eight. Uh, Miami is a really strong uh, quarterback room, both now and in the future. Uh, Ja'Curry Brown, the true freshman, got in, but they didn't let him throw. He's a couple-year project. He's a really, really big dude and uh, can throw the ball a mile, a gamer who can run around a little bit, but uh, needs to tighten up his uh, – repeatable technique and accuracy in the throwing game. But, uh, you know, you saw some things uh, that re- went really well, but, you know, you saw a lot of what you, what Manny Diaz, excuse me, Mario Cristobal, not Manny Diaz, Mario Cristobal <laughs> wants this team to be uh, big and physical, especially up front. Jalen Rivers, uh, re- uh, offensive lineman, left guard, returning from injury that ended his season early last year, named the ACC Offensive Lineman of the Week. That just speaks to the level of performance and talent that he has. Um you know, so yeah, across the board, this was pretty good. Uh, it was good enough that our all everything punter, Lewis Headley, never even punted. So, uh, you know, you get out of there, pretty much everybody healthy, you got a couple like a stinger and a rolled ankle, but everybody should be fine. Uh, you know, 70 points is what it should be every single drive, except where you had a fumble in the end of the game, ended up in the end zone for touchdowns. Every single kickoff was a touchback. Uh, you know, so a lot of things, a lot of parts and pieces coming together, not really too much you can take away other than you can kind of see what the mentality is going to be. Um, you know, and this is a really vanilla game plan, but, you know, we hopefully will, uh, this is the first of many building blocks for Miami, but from what I saw from a talent standpoint, the operational standpoint, just the way that this team is looking right now, I like where we're at, but miles and miles to go. As mentioned, we'll come back and preview Miami here in a, in a few minutes after we finish up this week. But uh, I'll just finish this up by pointing out Miami's drive chart in this game. Touchdown, 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 touchdown. Fumble, touchdown, 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 touchdown. End of game. <laughs> uh, and we had a pick six, much, yeah. Yeah, and, and the pick six. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much exactly what you're hoping for, I would say. <laughs> yeah. The, the anti-tech. <laughs> I won't tell you which tech. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't matter. Could be either. It could be. Miami 70, Bethune-Cookman 13. Uh, a couple others. Wake Forest 44, VMI 10. Uh, big thing out of this game, I mean, again, this was Mitch Griffiths, his show for the most part, starting the game. We found out earlier today as we record on Tuesday that Sam Hartman will be back this coming weekend as they play, I believe, Vanderbilt. Um, yeah. 
so, but even without him in place, this was a, a really good outing for Wake Forest. Scored a lot of points. Game never in doubt. They were up 23-3 to at halftime, and it only got worse from there. So a, uh, a really good outing for Wake Forest, even without their main starting quarterback here over the last couple of years, Sam Hartman. Uh, thankfully, he will be back moving forward. Anybody, anything? Uh, just that the line moved. Like a uh, touchdown. A touchdown. Yeah. With the uh, announcement that he'd be back. So, mm-hmm. yeah. That's, you know, that's well, technically, wouldn't it be two touchdowns because it was seven points for Vanderbilt. And now it's seven points for Wake Forest. Oh, so that's seven two scores. Zero. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it completely, flipped. excuse me, it's two touchdowns. Uh, Holy the cow. There? That's yeah. a huge movement. Yeah. Um, wow. Okay. Well, I, I was, even still, it's only a touchdown for Wake. I'm, I'm now interested in that number. But again, we'll, <laughs> me as well. We'll come back on that. Uh, Wake 44, VMI 10, and then finally, and I don't think I'm missing anybody, finally, uh, Virginia 34, Richmond 17. Um, a win is a win. Mm. Uh, they were down 7 to nothing early, and Richmond kind of hung around for a long time in this game. Um, again, they took a lead early. Virginia goes into halftime up 28-10, to and then Richmond scores again in the second half to make it 28-17 going into the fourth quarter. So, you know, it was fine for Virginia, but I don't know that it was necessarily like a uh, total continuation of what we saw last year. Um, I feel like last year's team would have smoked this Richmond team, and this one kind of didn't. They, I mean, they had a couple of good running uh, running days from Brandon Armstrong and Paris Jones putting up 100 yards each uh, on the ground, so that's pretty good, but... I don't know. I if, if I'm a Virginia fan watching this, it's like, this is fine, but it didn't really excite me, I would think. I mean, yeah, not to be not to be that guy, but be that guy, Mike. Just be that guy. At least they won. <laughs> yeah, like at least they won. But like, I mean, they got like a they got a Mickey Mouse staff, and Mickey Mouse staffs <laughs> get themselves in tight games against FCS schools. So, I mean, this is this is what you get. I mean, I. Look, Fuente had a Mickey Mouse staff too. I'm, I'm not, I'm not here to hey, throw look. stones at glass houses or anything. I'm just saying. FIU has won one game, and it's not against an FBS team, but they were winless up until last week since beating Miami in 2019. <laughs> so, if you want to talk about Mickey Mouse staffs. I think we all can uh, can pull up a chair and and uh, you know share some stories about those kind of things. You mean the one where like Tony Elliott is now over five hundred against FCS teams, which is more than a certain coach in the ACC can say or has ever been able to say. Rhymes with Hef Ballins. <laughs> Probably something worse too, but <laughs> I'll come up with that before we record the preview. Uh, yeah, I don't know. This is fine, Virginia. Yeah, I mean. First drive, just, four plays, just punt. Just be careful. Just be careful, Virginia. That's all we're saying. Just be yeah. careful. Yeah. It's, I mean, pretty sure Mike London lost to Richmond in his debut, so at least this is better than that. And probably after that. <laughs> you got to go back and look. Roll the team. Um, <laughs> yeah, and honestly, that was a thing that gave me pause when I saw that matchup. I was like, wait, haven't, hasn't Richmond beaten them a couple few times? Uh, but those were Mike London days. But you know who Mike London did beat over and over and over again? Wow, that's a weird thought. That kept that man employed for years and years and years. Yeah, um, I, I will point this out too. And and again, 
total like transparency, I didn't watch a second of this game. So I just I watched like the highlight video on on YouTube, and that was about it. That's um, brave of you. UVA first half drive chart, four plays punt, touchdown, 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 end of half. Second half drive chart, fumble, interception, punt, touchdown, punt, end of game. I don't know what changed after halftime, but whatever they were doing before halftime was working, and after halftime was not. So I don't know. I don't know what to make of all that, but I don't know. College football's we've what we've always said is college football is a very binary sport, right? Like, <laughs> it's a zero sum game, that's for sure. It it always always goes well until it doesn't. Yeah, Virginia thirty four, Richmond seventeen. That's all I've got on uh, on these games. Did I miss anything? I don't think so. I think we're good now. Now, if you did, it's not an important game, so it's fine. Should we, uh, should we give out some awards, perhaps? We should. We should. Where did my sound go? What is happening here? Hold on. Oh, here we go. I think I found out what happened. Uh, oh, yeah, here we go. Oh, yeah, cue the music. Let's go. The Go ACC moment of the week. Mike, we were talking about this. There are some weeks out there that we struggle for content here in terms of Go ACC Moment of the Week or Brian Van Gorder Memorial You Tried Award. There was like a, a backroom brawl trying to figure out which one we were going to go with this week because there was just a wealth of content across all these a lot games. To, a lot to choose from. Yeah. I believe your uh, your, your team ended up with the go, the official Go ACC Moment of the Week. Yeah. Uh, halftime of the Virginia Tech Old Dominion game. Uh, I've seen a lot of stuff in college football, and every year I see more and more stuff, and I'm like, man, I never saw that one coming. Virginia Tech's coaching staff came up from the locker room and got stuck in an elevator, causing a delay to the football game to start a second half. Gave they me enough time to get Charlie in bed, thankfully. Yeah, and, and I will say David David Cunningham from Tech Sideline, who joined this podcast for, for the Virginia Tech preview, mentioned that there was an announcement in the press box uh, before the game ended, and they said they recommended that you know press and you know people in the press box take the stairs, you know, as they exit the stadium. And David tweeted, "Yeah, I think I'm going to do that." <laughs> so, go ACC moment of the week goes to Old Dominion and their twenty thousand seat stadium and their inability uh, to move coaches from the ground floor to the top floor, which can't be very far to walk, by the way. <laughs> I had the thought today of like, what do you think they were doing in there as they waited around for like 20 minutes? Were they like drawing out a script? Were they talking strategy? Were they talking about the post-game meal? Were they talking trash about some of the guys on the sidelines and their wives? Like we like <laughs> what, what, what goes on in the elevator while they're sitting there just waiting and it's just them. You know, it's pretty late and there's th- there's some jokes I can make that I'm not going to because we have sponsors, <laughs> Joey. <laughs> Stephen would not appreciate your jokes. I'm confident. Yes, neither would bet us. Uh, the Brian Van Gorder Memorial You Tried Award goes all the way back. To, <laughs> I'm just going to ignore that comment. Okay, goes all the way back to Thursday night, the backyard brawl. As uh, apparently the facility formerly known as Heinz Field is, is what I'm going to call it, Acrisure Stadium was not fully prepared for the onslaught of Pittsburgh and West Virginia fans that were in attendance. I mean, you get a lot of people from West Virginia and a lot. Oh, I'm generalizing a little bit. A lot of people from West Virginia, a lot of people from uh, rural Pennsylvania um, who haven't played each other in 12 years that all hate each other. And they're going to drink an enormous amount of alcohol. And to the point where an NFL stadium ran out of beer, there was no beer in the, the second half 
of the Pittsburgh West Virginia game. They ran out of alcohol. They they could have really prevented this if they had just told them that Pittsburgh was going to be playing the Buffalo Bills and that the Bills Mafia was coming to this game. Yeah, they would have been fine. They would have been more prepared. That would have translated better, yeah. Uh, but yeah, the backyard brawl ran out of beer in the second half of that game. Maybe maybe for the best at that point, but also like, woof, what are we doing here? Yes. I thought I mean, this was America. Also, yes, but like that beer already got drank. You know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, you know <laughs> the liquid courage is already coursing through the veins of every <laughs> single person there. So it's not, I mean. Yeah, yeah, since, like I 10, since like 10 a.m. on that Thursday morning. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it didn't go to waste. No, it did not. Uh, the Kobe Bryant Memorial Volume Shooter of the Week Award. Uh, I didn't really come up with a better one, so I guess we maybe just go with Georgia Tech's Jeff Sims. 36 pass attempts, 13 rushing uh, rushing attempts for a grand total of 205 yards of offense. I mean, yuck. Kobe. Super Kobe. high usage rate, you know, like, there's that. <laughs> uh Solid week one in the ACC, um, and good to be back on the horse giving out awards, and uh, appreciate your help here, Cam, doing oh, so. Uh, oh, uh, before we exit, uh, Pat Garwo the third, 14 carries, 25 yards. That's not bad. That's uh, 1.8 yards per carry, so Kobe. <laughs> Kobe. Uh, player of the week. Who stuck out in your mind, Mike, that had a really particularly great week in the ACC, player-wise? Uh, Jordan Travis, my pick. I think that's a really good pick. Um, that was Thank a big you. one. Uh, yeah, I think that's probably my pick as well. I didn't think of anybody particularly at Pittsburgh that had like a really big performance in that game. I mean, Keaton Slovis completing 16 passes for 308 yards is not bad. Um, but I, I I thought that Jordan Travis, yeah, played a really great game for Florida State and one of the best that we've seen him play in college. So uh, we'll, we'll give it to him. Jared Verse, Florida State. Another really good candidate. Also, yeah, I was going to just go back to the defensive ends wearing number five. Uh, okay, Jamie. You know, KJ Henry and uh, Jared Verse, uh, Clemson and Florida State, respectively. They both were just super uber dominant. And I know that, you know, Clemson's defense is incredible. And KJ Henry plays next to Brian Brzee, which is like unfair. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> yeah, the, the two guys on the ends wearing five, I would say co players of the week for me. Yep. Yeah, D- DJU's going to play defense, Ben, soon. <laughs> tight end no they're gonna leave him on offense well i mean yeah double or he would have to change his number because you know the double number rule that's true that's true the penalty every time that's yeah, right so. yeah you can't put big cinco there next to kj henry on the defensive ball nah, cinco um yeah i don't know team of the week uh i guess florida state probably maybe cam you agree you florida state your team of the week <laughs> i mean objectively nobody has a better win you know, like, and I think that that could be impactful for them going towards, you know, their resurgence or their hopeful, you know, path of rebuilding. I see the um, pain in your face as you're like complimenting Florida State here. You know, I don't like them, but I do respect them. <laughs> I cannot respect those people from Alachua County. Uh, Fair. That being UF, I just, you know, they tried me in high school. Uh, I got in there, but then they're like, oh, we're not going to give you a scholarship. And, oh, we want you to do summer school to prove that you can live up to our academic standards. And I was like, I went to the second best prep school in the country and I had a super duper high SAT score. So, no, that's not going to happen. So that's my personal beef uh, in addition to the sports beef and everything. But I 
have respect, at least for Florida State. I don't think that they are back. I don't think that they're going to be super great. But of the teams in the conference, I think that's probably the best win of the week. So, yeah. I got one. I'm going to go with Duke. Yeah. Look at you, Duke. I'm going to go with Duke. I mean, they weren't supposed to win 30 to nothing. I'm just going to go out. I mean, Florida State's the obvious team of the week. I'm just going outside the box. Like, Duke wasn't supposed to win like that. Neither was Syracuse. Duke and Syracuse. Starting the Mike Elko era with a shutout win against a an FBS team. Like, that is more than I could have asked for. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Cam, the only uh, hole that I'll poke in your argument that Florida State might have the best win in uh, in the conference is how sure are we that LSU is better than West Virginia? Um. <laughs> well, there you. I mean, yeah. No, that's a good point. <laughs> kind of a joke. I mean, maybe not. No, I mean, uh, there's a lot of truth there. I was say, we sure? Yeah. No. That. That. No. Good point. Good point. Well made. So sure, I'll take Pittsburgh, and we can we can we can share the love here. Pitt, West Virginia, or sorry, Pitt over West Virginia, Florida State over LSU, and uh, and Duke over Temple. Uh, sure, teams of the week. Beautiful. That's all I got on week one. Anything else before we uh, move on to a uh, another discussion? Nope. Had a I'm solid, uh, solid near two hour discussion here. So uh, this has been fun. Mike, you you have uh, parental duties. It sounds like you got to go take care of. And as I look I at do. the clock, it is almost twelve forty five Eastern Time a.m. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Then, time flew. Yeah, that's that's how it goes with the uh, the parental duties. Cam, Felt you want to stick around and, and briefly preview the the rest of the Miami season here for a few minutes? Yeah, I got you. Let's do it. Beautiful. Bye, Cam. See you, Mike. Good to see you, buddy. Yeah, bud. Joey. Love see you, on Mike. The preview, bud. Talk to you see soon. You on the preview. Week we'll, two preview. Yeah, we'll preview week two soon. Yeah, bud. Have a good night. Yep. Cam, let's talk Miami in year one under Mario Cristobal. I will again. We'll kind of keep this brief. I, I'm curious as to your your take on this whole situation hiring Cristobal. Uh, he obviously this is this feels like a, a in a massive way an upgrade over Manny Diaz, and we've we've talked a lot over kind of what that meant for the program. I, and, and as much as you know, Manny had some good qualities and did some good things for the program. It seems like there were some pretty clear major deficiencies as well. Yeah. I do you feel like this hire and Cristobal? I, I I feel like he's a guy that also maybe has a couple of his deficiencies. Do you feel like that he is a guy who will get this Miami program to a place where the fan base is actually pretty happy with him and just wants to keep him around for a long time? I think so because the first thing is going to be the team is going to be more talented. You know, it's going to talent acquisition and recruiting is the lifeblood of college football and Mario Cristobal is in he's insane about that you know you talk to current players you talk to coaches you talk to you know these recruits tell me hey man he was he was texting me at four o'clock in the morning hey he was texting me at 4 30 in the morning yeah you can like schedule text messages and everything but like they're talking about having conversations with this man you know what i mean like I don't know when he sleeps. I don't know how much he sleeps. He catches a 20-minute cat nap in the office. Well, probably never sleeps in the office. You know what I mean? But, like, he is so ridiculously focused on recruiting and building the talent of the roster. That's going to be the first thing. And he has – Mario Cristobal has a history of success 
is not at the end of his career like Mark Richt, you know, and he he's just, he's done it and he's worked, you know, at Oregon, it was two Pac-12 championship games, a Rose Bowl victory in three years. Yeah, okay. Utah was a mismatch against Oregon last year and they blew them out twice. They were way more physical into the Sometimes that happens. If you look at the year before that and the year before that, Oregon was the one who was giving it to Utah and Utah finally got some get back. So I know people were talking about, you know, that last year, but like you're ignoring the other parts of that conversation. But I mm-hmm. think when you look at the history of success, you know, winning the conference, working in Alabama, working here, look, he made FIU relevant halfway decent and was putting guys in the league. Jonathan Cyprian, um, T.Y. Hilton, played for him at FIU, right? So he cut his teeth there. He, you know, the athletic director didn't like him, basically, and got rid of him. Pete Garcia, stupid, stupid, stupid move. Goes and works at Alabama, learns that whole structure, takes it to Oregon. It works. Pretty much locked down the West Coast and recruiting. Now he comes home and everything. There's a lot to like. So I think that we're going to get to a point where he's building. Well, right now he's already building the the program in his image. But I think that that's going to continue. Um, and also there's just a superstar cast of coaches and analysts like Jason Taylor, the Hall of Fame defensive end, is a quality assurance analyst on the staff. Like that just speaks to the overall improvement holistically in the program and hopefully that's going to you know bear itself out to you know get us more wins i I was going to ask too you know in terms of guys around him i i won't rehash the whole thing but i think the process for getting his coordinators josh gaddis and kevin Steele, was a little bit roundabout we'll say uh it was Mm -hmm. not a linear like immediate kind of thing it seems like they ended up in a good place are you concerned at all with the process for how they ended up landing those two guys as their coordinators I am not at all concerned about the process. He is, Chris Ball is known to be meticulous with how he does things. And if that's recruiting a player, if that's, you know, bringing in coaches. And yeah, as a fan base, you know, we were kind of a little antsy to see, okay, who's going to come in, who's going to come in. Because we knew off the bat, Alex Mirabal, one of his best friends in life since high school, you know, was going to come and coach offensive line. That was not ever a question. Two Miami natives, to Christopher Columbus High School alums, you know, all of their kids except for I think one of each of their sons was not able to go to Columbus because they were living elsewhere. But they're like, yo, like my other kid, like our other kids get to go to Columbus where we went, you know, and everything. That was a, like assured. You know, we got Joe Salavea pretty much immediately, and he followed from Oregon. You bring over Aaron Fell, the strength and conditioning coach, you know, with the Mr. Pringles mustache uh, <laughs> and everything. Uh you know, and but he's a guy, Feld, who had worked with Cristobal at Oregon. I'm sorry, at Oregon and before that, Alabama. So, okay, cool. Past that, it was like, well, you know, we're throwing out names of people that we know. And he's like, okay, well, that, that's fine. And then we're going to go and build. But I would have been maybe – I would have more pause about the process if it would not have been as fruitful as it were, right? Mm-hmm. If you're trying to get – someone good someone elite i mean these are i mean josh gaddis just won the bros award for the best assistant coach in the country last year at michigan like current reigning bros award winner kevin Steele has been coaching football you know hey longer than a lot of people been doing a lot of things you know uh you know working with the program as he likes to say uh (laughs) uh good old southern boy but Mm -hmm. 
you know, if you if you go for those guys, they come out and say, Miami tried to get me, but I'm good. I'm staying here. And you end up with somebody else further down the list. Then I would feel some way about the process. But the process worked, you know, so, no, I don't have any problem with it. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it was just it was a thing. It was like it was like past signing day when they were announcing yeah. like Josh Gaddis and that kind of thing. So that was. Oh, yeah. That was what stuck out to me is kind of odd, but you know, but hey, all's well that ends well. That also informed the fact of why we only had 13 signees in this recruiting class. Mm-hmm. You know, like you, there were guys who, I mean, like a Shamar Stewart, a five star from down here who, you know, Manny Diaz didn't really recruit as hard as he should have because whatever. Uh, and he's like, yeah, Miami made a run at me and everything, but like, they don't have a, a coordinator lined up right now. It might be a couple, and I think it was two or three weeks on when we announced Steel and everything. He's like, ah, maybe if I had another month or something, but I'm signing early and I'm moving out to College Station, you know, because he picked Texas A&M, things like that uh, and everything. But also then balancing that out, why we went into the transfer portal so hard, because look, we do have these coordinators. You're leaving from your place. Akeem Mesador, uh, the Moultrie kid from UAB, the two guys that we got from UCLA, we can sell that. So it kind of just it, that delay in naming assistants that you're going to be working with on a close level that really changed the balance of the incoming players on the roster this year, going from high school more to a few uh, portal guys where it was really pretty even almost maybe even one more through the portal than through high school recruiting uh, just because of that delay. If I'm making an assessment of this offense, and again, this is me, I I don't watch Miami's roster recruiting like that closely, nearly as closely as you do, obviously. My first guess here would be that I see Tyler Van Dyke at quarterback. I know historically Miami has never struggled to have some pretty high-end skill talent at the running back and receiver positions. Mm Mm-hmm. But I also know that the last few years, a sticking point has been the offensive line. But I also know that Mario Cristobal especially, and, and I forget the individual you named earlier of his staff. I recognize Alex that. Mirabal. Alex Mirabal, yeah, is, is a really well-regarded offensive line coach. Mm-hmm. My assessment would be this year in particular, Miami might continue to have a few offensive line issues as those things just maybe take some time. But in the future, I would expect that that would be a resolved situation, and this should be a pretty complete offense. Am I right to think that offensive line might still be a little bit of a sticking point this year as they get worked into the system? Um, maybe in spots, but overall, I think that we're going to be okay. You know, um, there's, I mean, you get Zion Nelson back, um, who could potentially be a high NFL draft pick. He did miss the opener, but he's a full go this week, is expected to play. Uh, that's your left tackle. He's been starting since whenever, you know, we had that game against Florida uh, in Orlando when they had 90 million sacks and he was, you know, 255 pounds soaking wet, um, you know, but yeah, so he's there you get Jalen Rivers back, who I think was the best lineman on the roster before he went down with a knee last year uh, and already in the first week was lineman of the week for the ACC. So that's a big step forward. Ja'Kai Clark over Corey Gaynor. Um, at center is an upgrade. Gainer lost that spot when he had a stink or when he got uh, injured last year. He left and he's now at North Carolina. Um, but that's a big step forward. Uh, and then, yeah, you got, you know, other guys just making strides, finally tapping into their blue chip talent, you know, whether that's 
um, Logan Sagapolu, who came over from Oregon, uh, Jonathan Dennis, who's the backup center. He's the guy who has, you know, who's left-handed and right-handed that kind of was the disconnect with the fumble. Uh, Jonathan Campbell, uh, or sorry, John Campbell Jr. playing tackle, who played left tackle last week um, with, uh, with Zion Nelson out, DJ Scaife. Uh, you know, when you're going eight and nine deep, you know, I think that that's a, a more settled situation, even if it's not, you, you know, the 1991 Washington Redskins, the best offensive line ever. You know, I think that this can be uh, a solid to good offensive line, uh, both now and in the future. There's a couple of freshmen who are playing really well, and there's uh, this mountain of a man, 6'6", 360, named Anez Cooper from uh, Alabama, who everybody is saying is probably the steal of all steals in last year's recruiting class. He's, you know, maybe a little bit, a uh, little bit too jiggly in the midsection and things like that, but he's come right in and he's solidly the second team right tackle and looking uh, very, very strong. So, yeah, I think that this can be a good unit moving forward, uh, both now and moving forward. I know defensively, I mean, that was always kind of Manny Diaz's calling card. And if, if scheme-wise, maybe it wasn't always the worst. You know, the, the play calling was pretty good. It was aggressive. It put pressure on opposing teams, but – We've we've gone over on this podcast for a long time that I mean, the scheme part of the coaching was fine, the technique part of the coaching in terms of angles and tackling and some of the finer things that you had this really talented unit year over year that was always underproducing. It feels like you bring in not only Kevin Steele as defensive coordinator but guys like Joe Salavea and and Charlie Strong, all very well regarded defensive coaches with a lot of background. In your mind, is this something that, again, is, is is it a quick fix one year, like you're going to see a night and day difference? Or as you alluded to earlier with the Bethune-Cookman game, like still some remnants of guys from years past where they it's like it's cooked into their DNA of like, here's what we're going to do is we're going to take bad angles and, and try to throw shoulders instead of wrapping up. Yeah, I think that it's going to improve, but much like the past for the Hurricanes, Sometimes you have to go from being abjectly terrible to like just simply bad and bad to mediocre and mediocre mm -hmm. to, you know, so I think that we're on that kind of progressional path. There are some guys who do still have some of the bad habits in their DNA. Um, DJ Ivy is a cornerback. He whiffed a couple few times on, on some tackles, mm -hmm. um, you know, and that was, kind of where it reared its ugly head with him. There was a couple other guys. Another guy is, you know, on, on social media, like really upset at one of our linebackers. I'm like, he actually played really well. But if you're asking that player, and I'm not even going to say his name because I'm not going to bash him like that. But if, if you're not fast, but you're asked to do fast person stuff, you can't do it. You know what I mean? Mm. And if somebody misses their gap and all of a sudden I need to run a four, three to this spot or whatever, and I'm a four, seven guy, you're going to get run by, you know, and those things do happen. So I think the limitation is athleticism more than technique for a couple of players. But yeah, I think that the goal should be progression across the defense and really really just improving the tackling. And I saw a lot better tackling um, apart from, I think it was three or four plays, but I mean, even though it's Bethune Cookman and I would like it to be zero plays, 
three to four plays of really bad tackling is a vast improvement from what we've seen. But yeah, if we're going, I would say let's try to be mediocre to mediocre plus in those really deficient areas. And that would still be a big step forward. But yeah, I think that you're going to really see major strides made next year, year after. In in your mind being mediocre plus in some of those areas, I mean, is that when you combine again, that's mediocre plus in some of these like fine technique areas. Yeah. Put that together with scheme and with other just raw talent on the field. I mean, is that, what what level of defense are we looking at? Is that like a top thirty defense nationally? If you're if you're just doing those things, mediocre plus. Yeah, I mean, I think that the goal should be thirty five or higher, maybe you know thirty eight or higher in terms of you know total defense or SP plus or or whatever. Now, obviously, everybody wants to be perfect. Everyone wants to be number one. Everyone wants to have you know the thousand batting average. You know, I I hit a home run every single time I come to play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like. Football's not like that, and just the progressional nature of development is not like that. So, yeah, I think that if we target for Miami a top – we'll call it top 40 defense, hopefully then, yeah, that's pretty decent progression. And with the top 40 defense and where the offense should be, and I mean maybe even higher because there is very good talent on this roster, then I think that we can be pushing for, you know, the kind of – success on the field this season that we're looking for fair enough looking at the schedule here and again we've already we've already seen one game against Bethune Cookman they are one and oh as we sit here talking about this uh Cam remaining out of conference games Southern Miss at Texas A&M home against Middle Tennessee there's one of those that sticks out much more than the other two (laughs) Middle Tennessee State uh yeah I mean they they (laughs) almost scored on James Madison this week so They, they might present a threat. <laughs> uh, Southern Miss and Frank Gore Jr. playing against his father's alma mater? Oh, no? God, I forgot he's still there. Uh, yeah, man. <laughs> that's, man, how did Frank Gore Jr. end up uh, with, with that end of the stick? I don't really know. The game at Texas A&M at Kyle Field, um, yeah. that, that sticks out. It looms large. It's going to be an ESPN game. You figure college game day probably there, um, if, if, especially if the Bear has anything to say about it. But it's – that's a massive game that I think that on the surface it's like, oh, well, A&M will be favored by 14 points and uh, they're at home and they'll probably just walk away with that. They're the SEC team. You know, Miami's little ACC team. Do you, what do you feel like is the is the realistic shot that Miami has to, to go in there and win that game in College Station? I think that it comes down to not having a terrible start. You know, I game think. Game script thing. Yeah, game script thing, you know. Much, I know how the game ended last night, but much like how Georgia Tech started against Clemson, you know, you get a stop here, you get another stop, you know, it's, you're moving the ball a little bit, everything's not working, but like toe to toe, right? You look like you belong on that field, even if there's a disparity in talent. And this is one of the two teams on the roster that has more talent on the roster than Miami does. It's Texas A&M and then it's Clemson. Everybody else is equal. At best. Mm-hmm. And that would be, you know, your Florida State, because they've improved their roster talent, your North Carolinas, things like that. But, yeah, that's a, a game where they're going to have more talent across the roster. And that's okay. But you cannot have the performance that we've seen from Miami in big spots. Who know? I mean, especially in the last, we'll call it five or so. Well, I think it was four years ago that we played LSU in that opener. 
Um, but we'll even leave it in that window. LSU, Florida, Alabama. So I think it's like five or six years. You cannot go down 17 nothing in the first quarter. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You can't have that. And absent that, then I think that there is a very reasonable path to a very good ball game going back and forth. Not saying that we're going to win, but it should be a contest. You have to prove that you belong there. And sometimes you have to prove that you belong before you can prove that you can win. So I'm not going to necessarily say that we can win, but if we don't come out scared and rattled and mess up after mess up after mess up after turnover, after missed tackle, after blown coverage in the first two possessions of the game, I think that reasonably it should be a close contest. Mm-hmm. That's that's one of those things, like you said. I mean, especially if you go down early, you know, like you said, seventeen nothing in the first quarter, early second, something like that. If nothing else, A and M is a team that's totally capable of just like parking the bus and just sucking the life out of the game and just not even really giving you a chance to come back, that kind of thing. So. I tend to agree. I and it's it's funny. The more that I think about that game, you know, two months ago in the offseason, it's like, oh, Miami's gonna go in there and get killed. And the more I think about it, I'm like, I don't know how much A and M is really truly capable of killing Miami or anyone of anywhere near that talent level. Like this actually might be a reasonably winnable game, especially if A and M makes a couple mistakes and Miami can capitalize. Like, right. I, I don't know that that's actually really out of the out of the question there. So that'll be an interesting one to watch here in a couple weeks. You get into conference play in October. Uh, coming off a of bye week, you start with North Carolina at Virginia Tech, Duke at Virginia, Florida State at Georgia Tech, at Clemson, Pittsburgh. So you're basically alternating home games and away games, uh, pretty much straight through uh, five or four straight coastal games, and then you get Florida State there at home. Uh, traveling to Clemson and then home against Pittsburgh the final two weeks of the season. Um, I, I, I had the conversation with Jim Hammett in the, in the offseason. I, I feel like the, the two logical picks to win the Coastal are probably either Miami or Pittsburgh at this point. Yeah. The thought in my mind was that that Pittsburgh game, that final weekend, might be like a Coastal Division championship game. I mean, it could be, and I think that that's what they're hoping for. That's why they keep putting – Pittsburgh last on our schedule, honestly. Like they they are hoping that that happens. And it has happened a couple of times. Um, you know, so yeah, I think that that's probably where you're looking. But yeah, you know, this is this is still a new regime. This is still a new team. And every week along the way, we have to go one and oh each week. You know, you gotta beat these teams. You know, Carolina, you know, they've been a thorn in our side recently. You know, they ran for 973 yards a couple of years ago <laughs> down here. I mean, like, they're, them boys are in the NFL, but they're still running, running just, you know, power and counter, you know, just them those two things. And Hadn't been I tackled mean, yet. <laughs> golly, boy. I mean, and, you know, when somebody got close enough to tackle them, they just put a shoulder down uh, trying to tackle the runner, and then runner just put another shoulder down. I was like, cool, you can take a seat, and I'm going to keep running. Um, so, like, yeah, right out the gate, that's a that's a big game, you know. Um, Virginia Tech, I don't think that they're good, but like Lane Stadium, that's not the easiest place to play. Duke, that should be a blowout. At Virginia, you know, like they're tricky a little bit, and they do have a good quarterback, so you got to figure out how to, you know, affect that. You know, Florida State continues to improve their roster, and this is a game that 
they play harder. And by they, I mean everybody. Mm -hmm. And players and coaches on both sides for the longest say, yeah, this game matters more. We play differently. We practice differently. We play differently. Like, we know these guys from high school. Look, you stay around the corner for me. You know, if I come back to Miami, you know, if we go to the crib for one night or whatever, like, you are on the next street over. Like, yo, we play on the same high school team, and you play for, like, it's a different monster. But you got to go win that game because you let that terrible, terrible, terrible team last year beat you mm-hmm. because Florida State was not good last year. You know, Georgia Tech, well, I mean, yeah, we should get that. Uh, Clemson. And yet. Um, I mean, and and yet, <laughs> you know, who knows? Uh, Clemson, you know, I hope for my sake, that they continue to play DJ Uyunglele uh, then because I that would make me feel way more confident in that um, than playing Clay, Kate Klubnick and then, you know, the, the Pittsburgh game. So, honestly, you know, I don't think there should not be realist if, if Miami is going to be who Miami aspires to be in that run, there aren't two losses. Over the whole season? No, of the ACC. Okay, all right. <laughs> like, I mean, oh, this oh. year, this this year. Okay. I mean, hopefully, eventually, it's going to be yeah, two losses or fewer every single year. But in that ACC run after the bye, if Miami is who they want to be, even starting this year in year one with the talent that was already on the roster, the talent that was added through the portal, and the coaching staff, and like schematic and just mental upgrades, there cannot be two losses. There can't, and. I'm not even once bidden, twice shy. Like this is 57 times bidden, 59 times shy of actually saying <laughs> that it's going to come to fruition. That there are, there is only a singular loss, if any, in that run. That's what the goal is. That's what we're building towards. Now, this is where, from earlier in the episode, where I think, okay, if you're talking about Miami being a year away from something, this might be it. Where, okay, we're a year away from really just leaning and flexing and being holistically better than these other teams in that kind of a way. But the floor for this season, for this season has to be the coastal division championship period point blank. It has to be the floor. So you get immediate, immediate proof of concept because trust and believe you can sell that to your roster. Cause you're recruiting the guys who are on your roster, but also the recruits and the transfer portal guys who are going to try to add to this roster in year one of two uncapped here for the transfer portal and recruiting. Yeah. Right. So normally for everybody listening, you can only add 25 total players to the roster. They did a thing where they said, okay, 25 from high school plus seven in the transfer portal. If you lose seven players off your roster for 2023 and 2024, they have taken the limit off you can add as many players either through high school or transfer portal as you want up to your 85 scholarship limit so you always have to be recruiting you're always going to be looking for that and look there's not going to be a well i wanted to bring joy and mike on but i don't have any more scholarships i mean i don't have any more spots to bring somebody on you have as many as you need up to your 85 scholarships so if you have a coastal division championship or more I mean, I'm here for the more, but at least the Coastal Division Championship this year, you should see, I mean, with all within within reason, I I would think probably a top seven or eight at least recruiting class, sure. if not higher. 
So Miami goes eight and four, finishes second in the coastal. That is a disappointment. Full stop. Yeah, full stop. Full hmm. stop. Full stop. Interesting. I mean, it's just, and I know that it is lofty. I know that it is. I I know that it, I know how it sounds and everything, but eight and four and second in the coastal, like that's that's Manny Diaz territory. And I know it wasn't where Manny Diaz was last year, but that is Manny Diaz as coach territory. That's okay, cool. We're going to, you know, just kind of, you know, two thirds, which is fine if you're playing baseball, but, you know, not if you're, you know, running a football program and things. That's, you know, that's Mark Rick at the end of his career. That's Al Golden for a couple of years before Clemson finally did what needed done and, you know, 58 nothing got him fired. That's, you know, Randy Shannon in a couple of years, not every single year, but, Pretty much every coach that we've had, you know, since, I mean, the first two years of Larry Coker, even Larry Coker towards the end was nine and three, eight and four. Mm -hmm. Like that's propagating that yet and further still. And I know it's year one. You're like, okay, well, eight and four, but you can build on that. Yeah, you can. But eight and four and second in the coastal, I am absolutely disappointed in that. Well, and if I have to sit here and workshop, like what's the most likely way to eight and four? It's it's a loss to A&M. And then you're probably going five and three in conference Oof. losses. Oof. Maybe if I'm if I'm again if I'm workshopping it, it's maybe that loss to Florida State and then back to back at Clemson and Pittsburgh to end the year. Like that's so five and three. That does seem a little bit rough, like considering what so, everything else is going on in the ACC right now. Like and those losses too. So you're talking a second straight rivalry loss to a team that's not as talented as you, Clemson. Which, okay, you know, I can still, they're still a top six roster in the country, even if their quarterback that they're playing right now is not great. And then Pittsburgh, who's going back to, you know, the 1970s, three yards in a cloud of dust on offense just because on the strength. And their defense was, I mean, fine, I guess, but West Virginia was gashing. You know what I mean? And those, I mean, I don't, there, there's not a good three loss scenario in the ACC for Miami. So, yeah. You know, if you're, yeah, and then you're taking that to four. I mean, and then, I mean, that's the most likely, but, you know, let's even just say that Miami goes into College Station and wins. Now you're talking about four and four. So you got to find oh, yeah. another random. Who boy. Who boy. Yeah. No, that. Yeah. No. Mm -mm, that does not make me feel good. Yeah. The, and, and again, the only other thing on my mind here is that it, it did seem like when Cristobal was at Oregon, it did seem like his teams were pretty typically good for a nice clunker loss every year that like kind of came out of nowhere that the yeah. team just came out flat and unfocused and all of a sudden lost a game that they really had no business losing. Yeah. And if you're telling me that that guy's now coaching at Miami that has a history of, I don't know, something along those lines, like exactly that it's, it's on the table, but you know, then again, like you've said before, I mean, the talent level here versus the rest of the ACC, you don't have to do a masterful coaching job to find your way to nine and three, ten and two here. Like it's you don't, you really you don't. don't. <laughs> you know, and you have a great coaching staff supporting you. You know, literal award winners and Hall of Famers and you know former head coaches just coming. Charlie Strong is a position coach, mm -hmm. not co coordinator, not the head coach, linebacker coach. Charlie Strong, mm -hmm. what? When was the last time he was just linebackers coach? 20, 25 years ago? Yeah. 
you know, this Florida, is a guy who, like, yeah. well, I mean, but I'm saying, because then he was even assistant DC. He was DC there. He was a head coach, you know, in Louisville and Texas. I mean, like this guy is a straight position coach on this staff. Mm-hmm. Right. So you have all the support that you need. You have a new athletic director. Who's a two-time Miami alumni who was just where at Clemson through their golden age, being their athletic director for the last 15 years. So he knows what it looks like to have a championship caliber and championship winning football program in this day and age. Dan Radakovich is his name. If only he built that at the place he was at before Clemson, darn it. Oh God. Oh God. Was he at Georgia Tech? He was. Yeah. Oh boy. I'm sorry about that. Anyways, please continue. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, so you have even on the administrative side, you know, the support, Alonzo Highsmith, College Football Hall of Famer, I believe. I mean, longtime NFL executive, Miami Hurricane legend. He's back as chief of staff. You know, Ed Reed is the culture guy, basically. Uh, Jason Taylor, like I said, is a quality uh, control assistant. Hall of Fame defensive end, Jason Taylor. You know, like, there is support everywhere. Mm-hmm. But... Also, they're 18 to 23-year-old kids. Sometimes you don't have peak performance, even if you're Alabama, even if you're O-State, even if you're Georgia, even if you're whomever. Sometimes that will happen. It's a weird okay, shape. Ball. It is. It is. But you have to root some of those things out and get to that consistency. And I think that all the structures are in place for that. And that's really where, like, yeah, if we, if Miami was okay with – I mean, like, look, if 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 eight and four happens, we're going to take eight and four. We're going to continue to push forward. But it would be a little bit of disappointment in this time, even with, excuse me, a coach whose teams have had clunkers from here and there. I think eight and four would still be just, yeah, yeah losing that extra game uh, would be, or two, depending on how things go, would be really a tough pill to swallow, even though it would, but yeah. Official Cam Underwood record predi- prediction: nine and three. Nine and three. I w- I want to go ten and two, but that that random extra loss that you, we were just talking about—that's what really just puts me firmly on the nine and three. And I think that that has to be the floor. I, I mean, eight and four is like I said, that's just not even in year one good enough. But I'm going to go nine and three. Um, hopefully, they prove me wrong by losing fewer games. Uh, I would really love a ten-win regular season. I really really would uh but again you know we need to see a little bit of proof of concept there so i'm gonna say nine and three for this year yeah i, I think i'm with you honestly i think I, I think i'm at nine and three I, I think a guy like tyler van dyke at the helm of the offense makes a big difference to me yeah um and then you know just again the coaching staff like you said and and looking at the way that the schedule lays out you know i I think there's still building to be done. I don't think it's a finished product by the end of this year, but right. And, and I forget what I said in the Pittsburgh preview, but I I want to say I did finally at long last in the long history of this podcast. I think I finally picked Miami to win the Coastal Division in the, uh, oh, wow. in the final year of it. I, I think I think I did say that I think it'll come down to that final game in on Thanksgiving weekend, but yeah. Um, at this point, I yeah, especially what I saw from Pittsburgh on Thursday. Uh, yeah, give me. I, we saw Miami play Bethune-Cookman, but what I saw from Pittsburgh, give me Miami in that, that Thanksgiving weekend. And it uh, okay. brings me no pleasure to report, but I think I think Miami wins the Coastal Division. So, Well, I you know, from your lips to God's ears, brother. So, I mean, <laughs> uh, this would be 
the third time. So there was a, a tie where we did not go to the ACC championship game back when Al Golden was here. There was 2017 when we won it outright. And then it would be if your prediction comes true this year. So uh, definitely not as much as we would have liked, but you know, Hey, we'll take it uh, and then move forward. But yeah, I think I'm sticking with nine and three uh, and everything. And, you know, and, uh, there's going to be growing pains and that's what I'm trying to, to caution to everybody, you know, even just going through the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know, which I do every week on the website. I was just like, you know what? I'm not going to put any bad because if it is corrective or constructive this week, it's gonna, I'm going to put it in the ugly. I'm going to put it at the bottom of the list because anything that needs a constructive con, uh, you know, commentary against Bethune Cookman, I'm going to put it all the way down. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There's no bad uh, at the bottom. <laughs> There's no bad. bad. Nope. It's all ugly, period. You know, so it's uh, definitely, a, a, you know, in a, in a, in a you and my kind of a way, it's a binary thing. Either it's good or it's n- nope, n- not at all, uh, kind of a thing. So I think that it could rear uh, something like that, rear its ugly head uh, coming forward. But you know, I want to see how Miami looks against a real team, uh, even a Southern Miss team this upcoming week. Uh, you know, a more uh, an FBS team. I won't say a real team; they are a real team, uh, but an FBS team. Uh, you know, and hopefully we build from there. And uh, the only other thing that I really am not concerned, but I want to see is Rhett Lashley, now SMU's coach, who was our offensive coordinator last year. Mm -hmm. And he was so in tune with Tyler Van Dyke and the vertical passing game. I mean, he, (laughs) it was pitch perfect and he would dial stuff up. And I mean, the vertical passing game was just so dangerous. And I know we couldn't run the ball and our offensive line was terrible. But there's teams that cannot run the ball who cannot pass the ball like Miami did last year either. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And it was vanilla. It, you know, it was going to run some mesh and some flood and, you know, a couple uh smash routes, which are, you know, uh, things that, uh, you know, high low reads that Tyler Van Dyke loves and he's very, you know, great at and, and things, but we didn't see much from the vertical passing game against Bethune, nor should we have, because again, if you're laying the foundation of the paradigm of this is who we are, this is what we're going to do. We're going to lean on people and run the ball. Fine, do that. I just want to see the ability to dial it up and hit vertical throws with Josh Gaddis. And I have full confidence that he has that ability and that intuition. It was just so... Uh, the connection was so easy and clean between Lashley and the mentality and Van Dyke's abilities. It There's obviously a question on, can the new offensive coordinator unlock all of that same kind of potential, even in a probable first two round NFL draft quarterback. Mm-hmm. I just want to see it. That's the only other thing I really need to see. Yep. Yeah. Well, and if you're looking at Michigan's scheme last year with Gaddis as the coordinator, Always questions of how much was him versus how much was Harbaugh, and you, yeah. know, you can you can see an easy path for him to open it up a lot more than what you saw last year from Michigan. So, you know, you never know. But I mean, starting with a better quarterback is Kate McNamara is nobody's Tyler Van Dyke. That's for mm-hmm. darn sure. That that is for darn sure. Miami, get ready, hang that ACC Coastal Division Champions banner. Can't wait. <laughs> Can't wait. I'm surprised you're excited for the uh, division championship banner. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I thought that was going to be a little bit of a jab at you. I don't know. Hey, man, look, we're going to take what we can get, uh, you know, but hopefully, you know, that'll also be indicative of positive performance on the field. And, you know, that's just me uh, owning that, taking that, and spinning that into something <laughs> positive that you tried to have be negative. There you go. There you go. That's that's the spirit. Be, be positive. Be positive. Absolutely. Cam, this has been a lot of fun. You want to tell the people where to uh, find your stuff? 
Yeah, man, I appreciate it. So, you know, always good to be back with you guys and, you know, good to be back speaking because I lost my voice for a while. I don't know if mm-hmm. you guys knew that. And that's why this preview is coming out a little bit later. So, you know, vocal therapy and everything. So you sound go. great. Oh, thank you. I appreciate you. So uh, I am the managing editor for State of the U. That is our SB Nation website. So it's stateoftheu.com. I also manage the social media. Uh, really on Twitter, there is also Instagram and Facebook at the State of the U. Uh, my personal Twitter account is at Underwood Sports. And forthcoming, probably soon, will be my own Miami podcast, which I will Ooh. obviously talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that was also supposed to start maybe a month or, two, uh, you know, six weeks ago, but, you know, vocal injuries, uh, not the greatest things. So, uh, you know, we'll be having, uh, hopefully, uh, getting that going and everything. But, you know, always good to be around. You know, you call me back anytime, uh, especially that week when Miami plays Georgia Tech and, you know, you guys uh, continue to do the thing. <laughs> I mean, you say that, but. Jeff Collins against Miami, I believe he won in 2019, and it was a three-point game last year. So <laughs> careful. I mean, hey, look, it uh, stranger things have happened. So yeah, you know, we'll be here. <laughs> Cam has been awesome as always. Really appreciate it, man. And no problem anytime, man. You want to help me get out of here real quick? Absolutely. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at FGRS Joey. He's at Mike McDaniel SI. Together we're at BC Podcast ACC. And once again, go find Cam on Twitter at Underwood Sports or right. at The State of the U for the uh, the official blog site there on the SB Nation Network. Um, go send us an email with your questions, comments, concerns, the longest email address, known to man, basketball conference podcast at gmail.com. Nailed it. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you. Uh, we have uh, we have a few emails still in the queue that, again, as Mike and I haven't really recorded together in like three months. Uh, we will get to those. I swear we will. Um, we, we know that you're there. We haven't forgotten about you. Uh, you can find us on iTunes and Spotify, all those good places you go find. Podcasts, I think on Google Podcasts or whatever that app is. Mm-hmm. Stitcher, et cetera. Automatic. Et cetera. Yeah, all those. All of them. Everyone. Go find us there. Uh, leave us reviews. Hit the follow button. Subscribe. We really appreciate that. Um, as, as one of my podcast idols, Stephen Godfrey, likes to say, go steal other people's phones and subscribe on there. Um, and then just return them like inconspicuously so they'll never know the difference. So that'd be great. <laughs> um, I think that's all I got. Cam, anything else before we get out of here? No, nah, it sounds good. So, you know, guys, uh, be sure that you obviously uh, rate and review and subscribe and be sure that you watch some ACC football along with this weekend cam pleasure as always really appreciate it brother we'll talk to you again sometime soon all right yes sir be good all right for that guy mr cam underwood and mr mike mcdaniel i am joey weaver thank you guys so much for listening hope you enjoyed week one we are coming back soon to preview week two we will talk to you again then until next time go acc go acc